0: Today's episode of 83 weeks is brought to you by SaveWithConrad.com, And I want to help you make this the best Christmas ever. How's this for starters? No house payments in December or January. You're done until February 1st and come February, you're going to have a better mortgage. It's not a matter of if we can save you money. It really is a matter of how much, and I'm talking to you. If you're in a 30 year loan. you don't want to be in that. You want to pay your house off faster and I can help you do it with cheaper monthly payments. I know what you're thinking. Well, I've looked at a 15 year loan before and I just couldn't afford the payments, I'm not saying you need to do a 15 year loan, but I am saying you need to cut some years off, whether it's a 25 a 20 or perhaps a 15 or 10, I can find a way to pay your house off faster and cut off years of unnecessary house payments, saving you tens of thousands of dollars in the process. And oh, by the way, if you've got credit card debt, let's help knock it out. Don't put Christmas on a credit card. You don't want to get stuck making minimum payments. It's going to hurt your credit score. You're going to pay hundreds or perhaps thousands in unnecessary interest. Let's get out of debt and let's do it right now at SaveWithConrad.com. I'm telling you, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how much. The average interest rate on a credit card right now in America is around twenty percent. Right now on your mortgage, though, right through the threes and fours. Find out how much money you can save right now by giving your family the best deal possible with my family at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. And oh, by the way, you don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. And we're licensed in more than 40 states. Check it out right now. You'll be glad you did. SaveWithConrad.com. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Mrs. B and I
1: are enjoying the uh, Florida weather as we got up this morning and checked the weather in Stanford, Connecticut. It was cold and blustery and winter-like, and we were out uh, enjoying the Florida sunshine, so uh, getting used to it, kind of digging it.
0: Well, and hopefully fans are getting used to uh, the rhythm we've got here on the show. We covered world war three, 1995, so much moving and shaking going on in that year. I really enjoyed last week's episode and we got really great feedback, or at least what I saw, what was the feedback you got?
1: Yeah, I, I got uh, pretty good feedback as well. Um, it, it. It surprised me. I wasn't sure that that particular episode was going to be that interesting before we did it, but once we got into it, I found myself really enjoying it and going back and looking at the the pay-per-view itself and just kind of recapping where we were at that particular time and uh, all of the above. It was a a fun show.
0: You know, Eric, one of the things we try to do on the show every week is we try to find a way to give our listeners more value. We want to give you more and uh, partnering with us on this is Boost Mobile because switching to boost mobile gives you more. So we're surprising people with more at every turn because boost doesn't just offer one great thing. They offer many great things like our super reliable, super fast network, but there's more, you get four free Samsung galaxy phones for the whole family. When you switch to boost, but wait, we're still not done. There's even more four lines for $25 per line per month with, with unlimited gigs for data talk and text. I'm pretty excited about this man, because I don't think we've ever had an offer like this before, where not only do you get the super reliable network, but the four free phones and a great deal after that, usually it's like, well, here's the introductory offer, but dude, this is a home run deal. Is it not? The gag is up.
1: No, wait a minute. The gig is up. The gig is up. This is without a doubt the best value. In, in, communication, in, 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 in phones, this is the best deal you could possibly
0: find anywhere on the planet. You get it right here in 83 weeks. The gig is up. Conrad. boost mobile, the switch that gives you more limited time offer while supplies last offer and coverage, not available everywhere. Each free phone requires port in additional terms and conditions apply. Visit BoostMobile.com or your nearest retailer for details. Man, I'm pretty excited about this four lines for $25 per line per month with unlimited gigs. Come on boost mobile switch. It gives you more. Well, today is going to be more of the same. We're going to talk about world war three, 1997, but man, this company looks a lot different just two years later. Does it not?
1: It sure does. You know, and I think that's, again, I've, say, I've said this so many times, and I hate being redundant, but it's one of the reasons why I love doing this uh, this podcast with you is it's it's forced me, not, not that I w- was totally against it, but because I have to kind of go back and remind myself of the subject matter and get myself, you know, up to date, it forces me to go back and look at these pay-per-views and, and, you know, pay-per-views, quite frankly, that you know oftentimes I've completely forgotten about. And in doing so, you know, you realize you can literally see the transition or the transformation, the evolution, whatever you want to call it, of WCW and of the business in general. It, it What I still believe is as exciting as the industry is today with so many things going on, you know, between, you know, WWE and, and being on a broadcast network over at Fox and AEW, you know, exploding onto the scene over at TNT and all of the growth in the independent sector of our industry, is exciting as all this is, there just was never a time like this era between 1994, really, and 2000. And to be able to go back and look at WCW and its evolution during that time period, and in some cases, it's so stark. I mean, the contrast is so vivid and obvious. It's, it's just... It's a lot of fun. I really, I really enjoy it.
0: I know this sounds weird, but maybe you'll get what I'm, I'm driving at. You know, when you're, when you're in the race car, you know, it feels like the view never changes and, and these, these small changes really do add up to be quite a lot from the outsider. But when you're so deep into it, you may not really notice. I guess it's sort of like when, you know, somebody starts losing weight and, they don't notice so much that it's just, you know, a pound a week or whatever it may be. But then when they see somebody they haven't seen in a long time, they're like, oh my God, what a difference. Is this sort of like an out-of-body experience for you to go back now with fresh eyes and see the evolution of the product?
1: You stated it perfectly. And it's, it, it, I can't think of an, a better way to to paint the picture, but definitely, yes. And and again, you know, I say, you know, I've, I forgot about it or, or you know, it's been such a long time. And, you know, that's true. You know, I, it's like, you know, when I read some of the criticism, you know, online of, of a particular episode, if there's a, a subject that I you know I don't remember specific details on or people love to bust my balls and, you know, suggest that I only remember the things that I want to remember and things like that. But, you know, th- these same people have never been in the driver's seat. They've never been in the race car. In fact, they probably more than likely have never even been to the racetrack. and really have no idea what it was like and you know i was talking to arn anderson you know in baltimore at starcast and we were both kind of joking about how how challenging it is sometimes you know knowing that arn is you know kind of new to the podcast scene and working with you i i asked him i said you know how does it feel to go back and and look at some of this stuff that You know, you probably have forgotten about it. You know, he just rolled his eyes and said, man, it's really hard. And he felt the same way that I do, or we both agreed at least, that, you know, when you're in it, as you say, when you're in the race car – and you're involved in so much. You're not only involved in your particular, in Arn's case, his particular storylines, or matches, pay per views, angles, and so forth. But when you're an agent, or you're on the creative team, or you're you know tangentially involved in the overall process, or, or deep inside the process, it all just blends together. It's like a kaleidoscope of of you know moments and matches and pay-per-views and events and stories and angles and issues and you know backstage problems and out of the ring issues and it all just blends together and it's really hard for someone who's been in the industry for as long you know as I have or or Arn has or Bruce Pritchard has you know to really be able to clearly pinpoint You know, details of specific stories that are 20, 25 years old in some cases. I understand how wrestling fans can and do because they're they're passionate, you know, they do their research, they live this stuff, they they talk about it with their friends or online. It's a subject matter, you know, for Reddit and other things. So this stuff is kind of vivid and fresh to them. But for those of us who are in the driver's seat, Man, that stuff was going by at 160 miles an hour. We just kept turning left as fast as we could until the race was over. And and once it's over, it's probably like, uh, you know, asking uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. You know, hey, do you remember, you know, in that fourth race in the, 1997 when you were on your know, seventh lap? Did you see that girl that waving the flag in the in the stands? You know, it's like, uh, sorry, no. <laughs> you know, I it's 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 tough, but it's it's also fun. You know, today, and I, I don't want to tip our hand yet, but, you know, in, in looking at a couple of these matches, uh, there was a couple matchups in particular um, with the Steiners and Steven Regal and, uh, and and Steve Taylor that I really, really enjoyed watching. And it, it reminded me how much I enjoyed watching. And I said Steven Taylor, I meant David Taylor. Um, how much I enjoyed watching uh, Regal and Taylor Russell, because their style was so unique. You know, we've we 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 have seen by 1997. Now we've seen Rey Mysterio. We've seen the influence of the Luchadors. Uh, Ultimo Dragon brought not only you know the the Japanese style. Uh, of uh, of the presentation to WCW but he also brought the lucha style because he was really working more in Mexico than he was in Japan at the time and he had this unique blend of both styles that really nobody else had and in watching this show again I'm getting way ahead of myself but I'm excited about it so I apologize but in watching this show it's one of the things that I I realized that you know we and we talked about it last week as well. We brought such a strong international influence to the industry in a way that no one else ever had. And I think that that influence is something that still resonates today. It's, it's still a big part of our industry today. In the influence of all of those styles, I believe, and maybe I'm patting myself on the back a little bit more than I should, it happens. But I, I really honestly believe that because of all of the influences, the international influences and the different styles that we brought to such a large platform being Nitro, with a massive amount of success we had and ratings, the ratings juggernaut that it was, I think really significantly shaped what we see today. And, and I'm, I'm proud of that. And when I go back and watch these shows, and I look at the different styles between Regal and Taylor and Ultimate Dragon and Yuji Nagata, and it, it, it just it, it makes me proud. It really does. It's, it's 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 fun.
0: Well, and what else is fun is, uh, well, giving a gift that actually benefits yourself. Gentlemen, are you looking for something different and romantic to give your wife or girlfriend this holiday season? Do not buy her another sweater or some flowers surprise her with designer lingerie from enclosed. This is not your usual department store or some Victoria's secret underwear enclosed is seriously high-end designer lingerie with something to match every style and taste. And guys, this really is the perfect gift. And it's almost effortless. You tell enclosed her style and what you think she'll like. And they take care of the rest and customize her gift. Enclosed has everything from beautiful silk 90s to ultra sexy panties. And trust me, from the styles offered to the quality, the fit, the feel, she's going to be impressed. Enclosed also offers a size guarantee, so you really can't mess this up. In fact, enclosed gets the, fi- the fit right about 98% of the time. Over 30,000 couples across America and around the world love how enclosed has helped them create romance and connection. And enclosed, well, Quite frankly, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Once you sign up, Enclosed is going to send her out a new gift each and every month. Your work is done. She's going to enjoy a custom curated surprise month after month. And, well, you'll enjoy it too. It's really a gift for both of you. Visit getinclosed.com to get started. And we've got a special offer for our listeners right now. When you sign up and use our special coupon code 83weeks at checkout, You're going to save $25 off any purchase that's get com, and be sure to use our promo code 83 weeks. That's the number eight, the number three, 83 weeks at checkout, and you'll save $25 on the best gift ever. And by the way, that is just in time. Is it not Eric?
1: It really is. Now I'm going to a little bit of a full disclosure here when it comes to gift giving. I like to think I'm a little creative. I like to surprise Mrs. B with something unusual, out of the ordinary, a little bit unpredictable. And and I try as best I can to, to at least live up to my own expectations, if not hers. Because Mrs. B is very easy to – she's easy to please, <laughs> obviously. She's still married to me. <laughs> but <laughs> – but, But I have to tell you, when Mrs. B opened up her her gift box from Enclosed and saw what was inside, her eyes lit up in a way I had not seen in quite a while. And it made me realize, you know, and people are probably wondering, why in the hell is a company like Enclosed.com advertising on a wrestling podcast? it's all guys it's a testicle festival here we all know that but guess what this group of testicle festival goers all have wives or girlfriends yeah and if you really really want to impress your wife or girlfriend and if you want to see her eyes light up in a way that they probably haven't lit up in quite a while go outside of the box so to speak no pun intended and try this because you'll, you'll, you'll see your, your lady's eyes light up in a way that they haven't lit up in a long, long time. I, I promise you.
0: Check it out. Get And the promo code is 83 weeks. Let's talk about the show world war three, 1997. It went down on November 23rd at the palace of Auburn Hills in Auburn Hills, Michigan, there's an incredible crowd on hand, 17,128 fans. 15,735 of them are paying more than 407 grand at the gate. And by the way, merch is white hot too. 139,000 and change there in merch. I mean, just unbelievable when you think about that. There are a lot of WWE house shows now that don't have $139,000 gate and ticket sales. And, and this is just merchandise here. That's all at the uh, Palace of Auburn Hills. And of course, the gate figure. Destroys the record that was set just a few weeks earlier at Halloween Havoc in Las Vegas. That was two hundred and ninety seven thousand dollars there. It fell just shy of the company's all time attendance record set on June 9th in Boston of eighteen thousand three fans with sixteen thousand twenty five paying. I mean, this is uh the best year at WCW history by far, is it not?
1: certainly was. <clears throat> 97 was a great, 96 was a great year. Um, not not as good financially as 97 turned out to be, but it set the stage. I've said this, you know, before when we've talked about, you know, where WCW was at at a certain point in time. And I think the the, the manifestation, the success that you're seeing right now, both in ticket sales and pay-per-view buy rates and merchandise, all of the above and then some, is really a result of the groundwork, the foundation that we had laid in 96, you know, and, and, and that's a, a point that I've tried to make in the past and I'm not really sure I've ever really articulated it as well as I'd like to, but you know, when, when I go online and yeah, which I do. you know. I, I'm not going to suggest I don't check out the, the wrestling news sites because I do. I like to stay current. I like to hear what's going on, um, particularly with with companies or shows that I don't typically watch on a regular basis. I like to stay as current as I can, and I'm, I'm curious. And it, it never ceases to amaze me how – I shouldn't say ceases to – it never ceases to amaze me. It never ceases to frustrate me when i read things that suggest that the writers or in some cases the readers and the people that are commenting think that you know all you really need to do is shoot one hot angle or change one storyline or you know put this put the belt on this guy and you know business will turn around and it's it it really reflects a lack of experience and knowledge and understanding of how difficult it is to to achieve the kind of success that that we achieved in in 1996 and 1997, or WWE WWE achieved starting in you know 97, 98, 99, it takes a wholesale change in approach. If you want to change the the status quo. You know when when WCW was floundering, when when we were a distant number two, when we couldn't, when WCW wasn't even able to to really consistently draw forty or fifty thousand dollars in ticket sales for a pay per view, for example. When it came time to change that, when when we were up against the wall, it it, it they weren't subtle changes. It it took a like wholesale change. It took. A vision that was substantially different than what up until that point had been presented to the audience. And in our case, you know, that was, you know, started with Nitro. It started with going live. Within a less than a year, it was the NWO. It was more reality-based storytelling. It was letting wrestlers use their own names. It was, you know putting main event type matches on television instead of holding them off for pay-per-view. There were so many things that we did really from 95 and and, and in 96 primarily that really we were benefiting from by this time in 1997. And again, if you go to the WWE network and you take a look at this pay-per-view in particular, look at the number of NWO shirts that the audience is wearing. It's
0: fucking stupid it's just and that's
1: one of the first things when I fired it up today you know knowing we are going to do this show you know a couple things popped out at me you know right away one is that, the, the cold open that we did for the show I really dug it it was again out of the box completely different I think a guy by the name of Michael Shocket is the, the person responsible for it if, if memory serves me correctly and he just did a fantastic job but it, it had a movie trailer type of feel as opposed to the Tonight, World War Three coming to you from Auburn Hills, you know, that, that monster truck, you know, typical radio promotion type of echo chamber voiceover, you know, which was so typical, really, in, in sports entertainment or professional wrestling up until this point. And it had been tried before. Sharon Sadello famously, you know, created mini movies that were promotions for pay-per-views, and 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 that was a different way of doing things. But it was a different way that wasn't effective. By 1997, we had kind of hit hit a groove, and it was trial and error. It took a long time. It doesn't happen overnight. And that's really my point in in this long-winded diatribe. It it. When you want to change the industry, when you want to make a a statement, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to try things. Some of them are going to work. Some of them aren't. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, But one thing that is for sure that's not going to change is that it's going to take time. Nothing happens overnight. And I hope that comes off as positive because it's meant to be, you know, for AEW, for WWE, you know, there's obviously, well, I should say, obviously they appear to be struggling with, with ratings still, you know, looking at the ratings over the last couple of weeks, I think raw has had some of its lowest ratings in history and they're trying things. And some of those, some of the things they're trying are, aren't going to work, but eventually something will, as long as you keep trying, the worst thing that anybody could do, um, is not to try, not to experiment, not to throw something out there that is so seemingly off the wall and unusual or um, out of formula. Um, if you're afraid to do that, then you're destined to fail. But as long as you keep trying, as long as you keep experimenting, you're going to find that you're going to find that groove, and uh, that's one of the reasons I love watching sports entertainment because it happens every week and it gives you the opportunity to kind of try something new every single week. And like I said, eventually something will, will click and you know, who knows maybe in another year or two we'll have another, you know, 1990s era, you know, sea change in, in the sports entertainment business because somebody came up with a great idea.
0: You know, the old cliche is, you know, well, the business is cyclical. And I think a lot of people use That's that. bullshit. That's bullshit. That's what I wanted to ask is, you know, do you think that something is going to hit just because it's time? Or are you just being hopeful, optimistic?
1: No, I I, I think it will. I think with the, the sheer volume of content that's out there, and, and again, I'll I'll just and I'm I'm saying this in full support of my friends at WWE. And I say that I mean, as we're talking, I just got a text from Bruce Pritchard. Um
0: and and what I you know, wait, wait no you y'all hate each other, remember? I don't talk. Oh, that, that's oh
1: that's right. I got I forgot. I'm not holding a party line. But there's a you know, there's a lot of people in WWE that, that I I consider friends and and you'd be surprised who some of them are. Um but they're trying. They I guarantee you as we're producing this podcast, there it's 6:21 Eastern time right now. Uh, according to the stove in my Airbnb kitchen. Uh, And I guarantee you, there is a room full of people at this moment in Stanford, Connecticut that are doing their very best to come up with something that is really going to, you know, capture the imagination of the audience and they're going to get there. They're going to find it. And I'm sure in AEW, you know, who's ever, you know, I'm not sure who the, who's writing what there. I have no idea who's, who's in charge of what there and who's, overseeing creative. But I guarantee you, you know, there's a lot of people over there that are trying to come up with that next really badass idea that's gonna, you know, get people talking. And that's really what it is, is getting people talking. It's you know, we used to call it water cooler buzz, you know, back in the nineties, right? It's what can you do on a Monday night that will get people talking Tuesday morning, whether they're in school or they're in the office or they're working in a factory or, you know, whatever. You know, what can you do that is interestingly enough, interesting enough, and and captivating enough to get people to talk about it the next day, as opposed to going, oh yeah, that was good. Click, time for bed, go to work, forget about it when you wake up. Right? It's it's, but it'll it'll happen. I'm I am optimistic. Because the sheer volume of content that is out there requires that, you know, these people are thinking and trying and, and eventually they will, there's a lot of talented people out there working on it.
0: Eric, one of the best parts of this show every week is revisiting old memories with you and, you know, hearing you sort of relive these for the first time because you haven't seen it in a long time. And, you know, some of these m- memories are, are fonder than others. But man, have we got a special gift for someone this holiday season? If you're looking to really highlight some of those memories, something truly unique and personal and special, how about paintyourlife.com, where you can have an original painting by a world class artist done by hand from any photo at an affordable price? And we were so impressed with this at my household. I got one back around the summer, it's hung in my dining room right now. I've decided that this is going to be a big part of the gift giving in my life. Don't tag him, but the nature boy is getting a photo from paintyourlife.com turned into a painting. Megan picked it out. It's going to be an awesome one for for him and Wendy on their wedding day and we've got another one for my mom. Her her dog is like her third child. She's absolutely obsessed with this dog. So our parents this year are actually getting presents from paintyourlife.com. And no, I didn't get a freebie. I paid for these and I know I got a good deal because I got 30% off of my painting and you can too. And right now, as a part of this limited time offer, anybody, in fact, who listens to 83 Weeks can get 30% off your painting. That's right, 30% off. And oh, by the way, free shipping. To get this special offer, just text Eric to 64,000. That's E R I C to 64,000. That's Eric to 64,000 one more time. E R I C to six, four, zero, 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 Eric. I know you're on this train too. When you're talking about working with paint yourlife.com, These are world-class artists. Am I right?
1: I am absolutely shocked at what a great opportunity this is. I really am. I love our sponsors. We, we vet each and every one of them. We try out the products, the service, whatever it may be, before we talk about them on the air. So it's a it's a great opportunity for us to get exposed to a lot of things I would have never possibly, you know, been aware of. But PaintYourLife.com is like one of the most fun. I love them all. I love all of our sponsors. But PaintYourLife.com is so much fun. I, I was, eh, you know, I eh, said my skeptical a little bit, you know. That oh what the hell we'll, we'll give it a try. When I got that oil painting back, I I was stunned. It what a phenomenal job that PaintYourLife.com did. Can't recommend it enough. I like you. Now I'm going through my <laughs> my laptop. I'm looking up all the really cool dog photos I have. I'm finding all the good pictures of my kids that we've had for the last 35 years. So I think I'm going to have to build a whole new wing onto the Bischoff Ranch in Cody, Wyoming, just to handle the PaintYourLife.com art.
0: I mean, it really is that easy. You find a, a great picture of yourself, your children, or your family, or a special place, or a cherished pet, whatever. And then at a price you can afford, paintyourlife.com brings it to life. A real, true painting done by hand, a world class artist, all created from one of your favorite photos. And it's awesome for any occasion birthdays, anniversaries, weddings. But right here on Christmas time, wow, I can't think of a better one. And by the way, there's no risk here. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded. How can you beat that? But you choose the artist you want to work with and you work with them throughout the process until every detail is perfect. It's a phenomenal opportunity. Stop what you're doing. Text Eric, E-R-I-C to 64000. That's 64000. Well, business is obviously on fire for WCW here in November of 97. We're fresh off the Halloween Havoc 97 pay-per-view where we saw Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan in a cage. Uh, I believe we've covered that on the show. I know we have, um, at some point, but either way, even though Piper gets the win, he doesn't win the world title. And by the way, this is the second time he beat him. He beat him at Starcade the year prior in Nashville and now here in Las Vegas at Halloween Havoc, uh, both times. Uh, He he wins neither our our title matches. Why was that an important element to keep the belt on Hogan? Oh, you know,
1: at this point Hogan was a heel, and Hulk firmly believed, and, and I agreed. By the way, and and it's ironic because you know Hulk held the title for a long time as a babyface in WWE. But I just think, from a psychology perspective, from a storytelling perspective, it makes a lot more sense to me to have the belt, the championship, the title, the holy grail on a heel. So that the story can be the aspirational baby face chasing that title and getting so close to winning it, but somehow it's slipping through his or her grasp. I love that way of approaching a story as opposed to having your world title, your championship, your Holy grail, your belt, your strap, or whatever the hell you want to call it on a baby face. Because, then the psychology would would, would dictate that your, your story, your hope is that somehow the, the baby face can hold on to that belt, that you love that baby face so much that you never want to see that baby face lose that title. And I don't think the emotion, the psychology is as strong for that approach to a story as it is to see that heal holding on to that holy grail that he or she doesn't deserve. You know they don't deserve it. You hate that character. You can't wait to see them get what they finally have coming to them and lose that that, that title or the, that championship. That psychology is is a more fertile ground for, from a storytelling perspective than the previous story you know, as, as a, a babyface champion. That's just my... My preference always has been, once I started really digging into the story and the storytelling process and the logic behind it, the psychology behind it, I think makes more sense than logic. Um, It just, again, my taste, my perspective. I'm sure there are people that don't agree with me. And I'm sure there are plenty of stories and illustrations of how it worked the opposite way. But as a general rule, over an extended period of time, I think business is better with your championship on a heel.
0: Who uh, who sat you down and explained the psychology of of the chase and why that works better? I'm not saying that to be, you know, uh, to, to be a smart ass. I'm just saying everybody learns this stuff from someone. Is this a Vern Gagne thing, or, or where where do you really learn about the psychology of the chase and things like that?
1: It, you know, it, 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 it's a really good question. And I, I wish I could say, you know, there was one person who was a mentor to me who sat me down and said, OK, Eric, here's how this all works. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. I, I learned by observing. I learned by experimenting. Then going back to what I said earlier, you know, I, I've, I've said this before in this podcast. I avoided creative like the plague, uh, up until uh, I started kind of in a real way dipping my toe the water ninety five with nitro because I had to because I literally had a gun to not literally I figuratively had a gun to my head or at least I felt like I did and I had to take responsibility I could no longer just hire the best people that I could find. And, and delegate that responsibility to them and feel okay about it because they had more experience than I did. Mm. And that, that was the way I approached the business in 92, 93, 94, and even into 95. But by the time the end of 95 came along and Nitro was a reality, because Nitro was really my vision more than it was anybody else's, the elements that I felt were, that were necessary to make Nitro work were really and I'm not saying this to put myself over to take credit for things that I shouldn't, but the very idea of going live was my idea. The idea of doing everything opposite of the way WWF was doing it was my idea. The idea of giving away finishes and being controversial and, and all of the crazy shit that made Nitro successful right out of the chute. Head to head against the juggernaut, you know, num- WWF's number one show, not their B show, not their C show, their number one show. It would be equivalent to AEW going up against Monday Night Raw right now. And and actually it, w- it was harder for me because AEW came out of the shoot as a new kid in town. They didn't have any baggage. They hadn't they didn't have a bad history. They didn't have the, the, the negative brand association that WCW had uh, for such a long time. You know, we we went into that war bleeding profusely from wounds that, that occurred back in 1990 and 91 and 92 and 93 and, uh, under Bill Watts and a whole bunch of other people that were in charge and Oli and, you know, I'm not going to get into, you know, naming names in that regard, but... We all know the history. So when when Nitro went head to head with WWE, we weren't we didn't have the advantage that AEW had. We weren't, you know, we didn't have that anticipation. We didn't have people excited about it. We had people criticizing us for it. We had people predicting that we were gonna die a miserable death in the dirt sheets. We we were considered to be a joke for even making the attempt. So not only were we going up against the juggernaut. We were going up against the juggernaut, you know, with an anchor t- t- tied around our, our neck. But the point is that we tried different things and, and it worked. But I think to answer your question as directly as I can, you know, sitting down and spending hours and hours and car rides and, you know, hunting trips and, you know, copious amounts of Coors Light with Dusty roads helped me a great deal. Uh, I learned a lot from Dusty over a long period of time, not overnight, not in a week. I learned a lot by watching Dusty. I learned by watching Dusty's mistakes. Dusty made mistakes. We all, we all admire and love Dusty Rhodes and, and, and look up to him as such an icon in this industry. And he is. But he was not without his faults. And, you know, go back and read some of the reviews and the commentary from guys like Dave Meltzer when Dusty was really running creative at WCW, if you don't believe me. They they crucified him. And in many cases, you know, some of those mistakes were obvious and and were worthy of criticism, just like mine were. No doubt about it. I, I, I deserved a lot of the criticism that I got. Some of it wasn't justified, and some of it was ill-informed um, with regards to Dusty. But I had, you know, I had a unique seat to be able to, to learn from his successes, his meaning Dusty's, but I also had the opportunity to learn from his failures. So it was the combination of his successes and his failures that helped shape the way I thought about things. Um, same with Vergania. Not to the same extent with Dusty, though. I didn't really get a chance to get into the depth of psychology with, with Vern that I did with Dusty. Uh, I mean, I learned a lot and, and Vern taught me a lot. Um, but not to the same level as, as Dusty did. I think because my position with Dusty was much different. um, and my relationship was different. I was close to Vern, but I was much closer to Dusty. You know, we, we did spend time together. We did, take a, a deer hunting trip out to Wyoming and we're up in the mountains together with my wife and, and Dustin Rhodes and, and Dusty and Doug Dillinger and, you know, spend a week up. And, and, you know, I know that doesn't sound like that's the kind of place you're going to, you know, talk about wrestling or learn anything, but it's a, you know, it's, it's a cumulative effect of, that you know, the kind of exposure that you get over a long period of time when you have that kind of a relationship with somebody that you just kind of learn by being in proximity. So Dusty was a big influence. Uh, you know, I learned a lot from Ric Flair, you know, when Rick was booking, same thing, successes and failures. Uh, I learned a lot from Hulk Hogan again, successes and failures. I learned a lot watching WWE successes and failures. So sometimes you can learn as much by what, by, by realizing what went wrong with a story or formula or psychology as you can, by looking at a successful you know, story and trying to replicate
0: it. Let's talk about what's going on on the other station. We're just a few weeks removed from the Montreal screw job. Thank you. Everybody is familiar with that. And obviously, you know, Brett's on his way to WCW. Randy Savage would address the McMahon, Bret Hart situation, saying McMahon's really on a roll of bad decisions. And he brings up a match where his father told him that buddy Rogers was the booker and a ref conspired to double cross Argentina, Rocca who had refused to do a job, but Rocca didn't react like Hart did. He said about Michael's admitting that he had talent in the ring but that his acting job in regard to pretending he didn't know wasn't very good. And he said the belt he carries is now a joke. And so was he. So it's rare that we hear some strong opinions from the macho man, uh, at least on the competition. Was there some sort of discussion about what you, what the guy should say or shouldn't say with regard to the screw job? And, and were you, um, proud or I mean, What's your reaction when you hear, The way Macho was handled. This, what's the emotion? You know,
1: to your first question, I didn't. You know, I didn't address anybody uh, as as a group or individually and suggest that they should or shouldn't take a position. Um, They're all adults. They're independent contractors. They're free to say and do anything they want to do as long as they're not inside of you know a WCW arena or a WCW ring when there's a red light on. Uh, I I never tried to control or expected to be able to control my talent uh, or the talent that was a part of WCW to that extent. It was just not my approach to management. Um, So the fact that Randy had an opinion and spoke out and, and expressed that opinion on his own, I had no issue with it professionally I was a little bit surprised because Randy was one of those you know Randy was God. he was such a unique cat in so many ways and even though he was angry with Vince McMahon and WWF for relegating him to the announced booth it was one of the it was the catalyst really for Randy coming to WCW as we've discussed but there was a there was a level of respect there Um that regardless of how he may have felt personally, he meaning Randy, uh, how Randy may have felt personally about Vince McMahon or the way he handled business and things like that, for the most part, you know, Randy was old school and he, he had respect. And for Randy to kind of step out uh, of his normal way of handling things and and be so expressive about the issue kind of caught me by surprise. I didn't expect him to do that, but that's how Randy felt.
0: Well, since we're talking about the WWF, let's talk about the ratings. Uh, in the month of November, nineteen ninety-seven, November third, Raw does a two point six, Nitro does a four. Raw rebounds on November tenth to a three point four, but Nitro's up two to a four point three. Raw is going to dip back down on the seventeenth to a three point one. Nitro is a four point one, and the night after this pay per view, recovering the day World War Three, Raw does a three, and Nitro does a three point nine. So maybe, uh, maybe not uh, the the huge ratings you're going to experience in nineteen ninety eight, but you are handily winning here. Are you feeling pretty confident in your your position in the Monday Night Wars when you're, you know, sweeping month after month like this?
1: Yes, Um, by this point we had enough momentum. The formula was working. There was, and (laughs) I'm only hesitating because it was in October of 1987. I remember Hulk saying to me, "Don't don't get too comfortable, because you know this can change." And I remember when he said that to me, we were we were in a limo going somewhere. And Of course you were. Yeah, well, no, I mean, we were going to an arena, and we, we had landed at an airport, and a limo had picked us up, and we're, we were on our way to the arena when we were having this conversation. And I remember thinking to myself, what, what his exact words were, don't get too full of yourself, because it can all go away just as fast as it, as it came. And I went, why would he say that? Why, why, why would he take, why would he be, cause I took that as a negative, you know, and, and it was great advice. And I wish, I wish I was even thinking about this today at the end of this, after watching this, you know, it's like, what would I have done differently? You know, if I would have known back in 1997, what I know today, what would I be doing differently in 1997? You know, if the, if the, 64-year-old Eric Bischoff could have a conversation with the 42-year-old Eric Bischoff. Um, what would that conversation sound like? What would I have done differently on this pay-per-view? What would I have been doing differently at the end of 1997 and early 1998? And th- that would have been a long conversation, by the way, if I would have been able to have it with myself. But it, it – it, it it stuck with me, and I still remember it to this day. It's like occasionally there are moments that you do, or I do remember. Like I remember right where I was sitting, you know, in that limo. And I remember, you know, we were pulling up to the Joe Louis Arena, I think, or or, or might not have been Joe Louis Arena. I think it might have been, but we were pulling up. You know, to the venue and we're just about in up to the venue, just about ready to get out of the car. when We were having this conversation. You know, I remember where I was when I had, you know, the conversation with Bret Hart about, you know, should he, you know, does he need to have the belt with him when he comes to WCW or should he drop it? You know, I, I was. I had two conversations. The first one was at a payphone. Yes, there were payphones at the Salt Lake City Airport. Uh, Terminal C, as a matter of fact, uh, and I was headed to Terminal E, and I got a page from Brett, and I had to get to a payphone and call them, and we had the first part of that conversation. And I was in Salt Lake City because I was on my way to Cody, Wyoming, and the second part of that conversation we had, I was at a little place called the Wapiti Bar and Grill, for dinner uh, just outside of Cody, Wyoming. And I got on a payphone there and had a a similar conversation with Brett where I assured him the title didn't matter and not to worry about it. But this was another example of, you know, a, a moment in time that I do remember very specifically. And I was very confident to your original question. Yes, I was very confident, probably overly confident, probably not thinking enough about, where, where are we going to be next year? Where are we going to be three years from now? Where are we going to be five years from now? Uh, I was in the kind of frame of mind of, you know, how do I replicate this next month? I wasn't thinking far enough ahead is, is my point to all of this.
0: I think about, uh, I don't even know that you remember this, but you and I did a couple of shows last year and they were back-to-back shows, uh, one in St. Louis, and then we jumped on a plane and went to Nashville the next day. And for whatever reason, I was behind you in the airport. And when I caught up to you, you were at the airport bar in St. Louis. We're waiting on our plane. We had the most brief conversation ever, but it was about, you know, your daughter and and where I think she was moving at the time and how Netflix was changing, Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. And then randomly, we got into podcasting. And I said something like, well, because I don't know how much longer this is going to last. so I'm going to enjoy it while I can. And he sort of sat back and looked at me and he said, God damn where were you 20 years ago? <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think it's funny that now you're telling me the Hulk Hogan story. That's sort of the same thing where, you know, this, this fun run we're having right now with the podcast, this is not going to last forever. So we might as well have some fucking fun with it. And, um, it, I think that's the best part of this show is you get to go back, you know, and I enjoy all of the podcasts I do, but with you as a co-host, we get to go back and be a little more introspective. And we'll admit fault when it's there occasionally. And we'll take a real business look at what could have done different or what maybe we should have done differently with the benefit of hindsight. And more importantly, what led to the decision that was made at the time? And I don't know. I'm having a lot of fun doing this with you. Well, good. I appreciate that. And I have,
1: I have fun doing it with you as well. I think the most fun part for me is. You know, and and listen, I I understand that on social media, oftentimes people are going to, you know, they're going to bust my balls because, you know, that's what people do on social media. Right. And on the flip side of that, there are going to be people that are going to say great things because, you know, they're fans and they want to say something that they think you may want to hear and, you know, get a retweet, you know, or a heart or whatever, a like. So I, I, I take both with a grain of salt. But consistently, I think one of the things that brings me the most satisfaction about doing this podcast is, aside from going back and looking at my body of work, (laughs) for better or worse in some cases, but, you know, when, when I get comments like, God, I never realized that, or wow, I didn't understand that aspect of the business, or man, when when I listened to 83 Weeks, I learned, you know, there's one today that says every time I listen to 83 Weeks, I learned something new about the industry that I never knew before, and to me, that's Aside from the financial benefit of it all, that's the most rewarding aspect of doing this because this is a very complex business. It's more than just, oh, that storyline sucked or that angle sucks or this person or that person should hold the title or, you know, those are the superficial kind of candy coated, you know, comments that, you know, you read all the time and, and they're worthy comments. People exchange them. It's kind of like people armchair quarterbacking a football game, you know, Monday morning. It's part of it. But when people begin to have an appreciation for just how complex the professional wrestling industry is, and it is complex, in many ways it's far more complex than 80% of what you see in the world of entertainment. You know, when it comes to, you know, television, you know, producing dramas, producing movies – um, sitcoms, whatever it is you watch, it's pretty straightforward business. It's not easy. By straightforward, I don't mean easy, but the formula is pretty straightforward. It is what it is. Yes, it evolves. Yes, it changes. Yes, Netflix and streaming and all that you know makes it more competitive or more complex and changes the landscape. It has its own inherent kind of pitfalls. But the actual storytelling aspect of it is fairly straightforward. But with sports entertainment professional wrestling, you not only have storytelling and character development, it's a live-action presentation. It tours. You know, Game of Thrones doesn't tour. <laughs> I'm sorry, CSI isn't coming to your local arena. And and that and and, and by the way, the touring aspect of the business model for professional wrestling is a very significant revenue stream. You know, read what happens to WWE stock when they have their quarterly ratings report and you know, their uh, arena arena revenue drops to any significant degree licensing and merchandising, same thing. You know, the pay-per-view model, same thing. You know, the international touring, same thing. I mean, it's such a complex business model so much more complex than almost any other form of entertainment. And when people can listen to the show and feel like they have a better understanding of it as a result, I I think you and I are not only having fun and making a couple bucks in the process. um, We're actually doing the industry a service.
0: You know, Eric, we talk a lot here on the show about getting heat and booking heat. And we always reference Kevin Sullivan with that. And sometimes, you know, people online think the character Eric Bischoff played on TV and the real life Eric Bischoff are the same guy. And, you know, you're not always the most popular guy. But that's that's like that's kayfabe. That's make believe. That's not real. What is real, and this is really important, is that I hate Steven Singer. And you will too. And the reason I hate Steven Singer is because He's sort of breaking all the rules we use on the podcast, and this is really important. He wanted me to let all of our listeners know that Steven Singer is not having a sale. That's right. They're not. N-O-T, capital letters, bold letters, not having a sale. In fact, Steven hates stores that play the pricing games and pretend to give big discounts for holidays like Cyber Monday or Black Friday or Flag Day or the third Thursday of the month, or maybe you're standing on one leg. You know... Everyone is out here getting ready for their black Friday sale right now, but not Steven singer because at Steven singer jewelers. They do something crazy. They give you a great price every day. You don't need to, you know what,
1: Conrad? I hate to break this up. Cause you're doing such a great job on this read, but I'm listening to you talk about Steven singer and he's a disruptor, right? He did everything different than everybody else. Yeah. He decided not to kind of like follow the norm and and, and, and and give a great value where everybody else was given a great con. Steven Singer is the Eric Bischoff of the jewelry business. Steven Singer is the original OG NWO of Philadelphia. Don't you think his story, my story are almost the same. If you're a fan of the NWO, if
0: you're a fan of the Monday night wars,
1: how could you not be interested in the Steven singer story?
0: Uh, Seriously, no coupon, no weird sale dates. And only Steven singers doing that. Steven has one price, never sale, never a discount. You're never going to have to worry about negotiating or worry. If somebody else got a better deal, Steven's not going to mark something up and then pretend to mark it back down. Every piece of jewelry in his store has one perfect price for everyone and it's backed up by the best guarantee in the business. Fast and free shipping both ways, free returns, and a full 100% 100-day full money back guarantee. Visit Stephen at the other corner of 8th and Walnut and Philly or give him a shout. 1888 I hate Stephen Singer or online at ihatestevensinger.com. Stephen Singer Jewelers, one place, one price. Well, let's talk about the time you, uh, made some headlines in the industry. Rick rude would debut on the November 17th nitro, which is live. And of course, raw is taped and he's also on that show. And just to make things even more evident on raw, he has a beard on nitro. He does not for what it's worth. He was also on ECW TV that weekend. So I think he's like probably the only guy in history to be on all three shows within the span of a few days. Talk to me about how this comes together. Rick rude coming to WCW. He's obviously operating in the WWF on a per night deal. No contract. This feels like something that you would have been salivating at once you realized that was the case.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, the night that the Montreal Screwjob, as it's now infam- infamously known as, um, went down. One of the first calls I got was from Rick root and Rick and I have been friends for a long, long time, even though he wasn't working for WCW at that particular moment, we were still friends. And he called me at home. He had my home phone number. And he was livid. He was just livid over what went down. And he didn't want anything to do with WWF. And he he said, Eric, is there a spot? Is there, I mean, I can manage, I'll do whatever. I just want to get, I want to get out of here. And my first question was, well, what, what's your contractual status? He goes, I don't have one. And at that point, you know, the competitor in me, um, got a little excited. That's putting it mildly because the ideas were already formulating in my head didn't know for sure what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, but I knew that there was a potential to do something really, really cool. Similar to, you know, Lex Luger showing up, Medusa throwing the belt in the trash, giving away finishes, all the crazy shit I did to stir up controversy. But when Rick called and said, hey, I'm free, I want to get the hell out of here, and what can I do? I'll, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. I'll Just get here and we'll figure it out. So it was, uh, it came together fast. It was really easy and in large part because of the relationship I had with Rick at the time.
0: Meltzer would write as part of his contract with WCW was surely a hefty six figure signing bonus that acted as a settlement on his lawsuit. In case you're keeping up at home. He's operating with both ECW and the WWF without a contract and neither company thought there was a chance he would go back to WCW because apparently there's pending litigation about a lawsuit, uh, or or about some injuries that he suffered in WCW. I think most people remember he broke his back in a match with sting over in Japan, Lloyd's of London becomes involved. Do you remember there being some sort of discussion about a, a quote unquote settlement in order to get him to jump here?
1: Absolutely false reporting. There was no settlement. There was no hefty six-figure signing bonus. Again, fabrication on the part of one Dave Meltzer. Nothing even remotely close to it. I mean, I can't even I, – I, I, there's nothing that I can point to that would allow me to say, well, maybe Dave misunderstood. Or maybe he didn't get the information correct he made that shit up he assumed it he assumed that was the case and just wrote based on a completely false erroneous assumption rick came to wcw his issue was with lloyds of london it wasn't with wcw his issue was lloyds of london issue and ultimately unfortunately that was the issue that eventually drove a wedge between Rick and WCW. Because, you know, when, when Rick called me and he said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm available, you know, blah, 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 blah. And keep in mind, he couldn't, Rick couldn't wrestle in WWF either for the same reason. That's why he was a manager. There was a limit on the physicality that he could do. And that, that same condition situation, existed when Rick came to WCW. And there was no signing bonus. It's bullshit. It's typical Dave Meltzer bullshit that still exists to this day, unfortunately, that people still believe and defend him for, for God knows why. But as I said, it was the same issue that eventually led to the, the the wedge between us. Because in, and I'm you know I'm taking a I'm I'm, I'm taking a stab at what was going through Rick's mind at the time. Um, he and I didn't talk about it in depth, although we did a little bit. Um, Rick saw how things how hot things were getting. Look, when when Rick Rude took advantage of the when I say took advantage, he, I'm not suggesting he worked it or conned or misrepresented anything. I'm not suggesting that at all. But when Rick decided to make a claim with Lloyd's of London and take advantage of the insurance policy he had, at that point in time, his wrestling career was over. His in-ring career as a wrestler was over. Once you take that cash from Lloyd's of London, once you once that check clears and you've signed all of the the paperwork that goes along with it, you agree that your your in ring career is over. They're buying you out of it. You you take the money, but you're taking the money because you can no longer participate in 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 ring activity, which is where you've made your money, you know, during your career. That's the reason for the payout so that if one were to cash in on that Lloyd's of London policy and then decide, okay, now that the check's cleared, I'm going to go sign over here and make another four or 500 grand a year. You're going to be getting a call, you know, from lawyers representing Lloyd's of London for insurance fraud. And you got a really big problem at that point. That's why Dave's, you know bullshit narrative fictitious reporting was such a joke to me and why i still i try not to get angry about this stuff but it's so blatantly obviously fictitious that i don't understand why more people don't realize how fraudulent his shit is but when rick saw how hot things were getting in wcw by 98 especially 97 98 he was chomping at the bit to get in the ring. He wanted so badly to get back in the ring that it it was eating him up inside. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I say this with all due respect to his family. Uh, you know, I met his wife and his son a couple of years ago at WrestleMania. I had a great time with them, and I don't want to say anything to disrespect Rick or to suggest anything that would offend or hurt his family's feelings, but I think Rick really realized that it might have been better for him to have not cashed in that Lloyd's of London policy, and I, I think he was he he, he was he, he was he was struggling with that, and at at that point he wanted me to to pay, to pay Lloyd's of London the sum of money that Lloyd's of London had paid him during his claim, and I as much as I liked Rick and as close as we were i couldn't do it i i I mean you know i I know i have the rap thanks to mick foley you know referring to me as at america or uh, whatever you know that i could just do anything that i wanted to do and i had a big just giant you know cash register full of money and i could give it to whoever i wanted to give it to and you know i didn't have anybody to answer to and it's all again you know false narrative bullshit whatever you want to call it I I had to be responsible for my budget. And if I was going to stroke a check for a couple hundred grand, or in Rick's case it was much more than that, I'm going to have a conversation with somebody as to why I did it. And I couldn't do it. And I think part of what led to Rick's overdose and his issue with with drugs and alcohol was probably his frustration uh, about not being able to get back into the ring. I, I really believe that. I may be wrong. I don't have any – I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm, 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 I have no real knowledge of what really was going through his mind at the time, obviously. But just having been around him and seeing how frustrated he was at the time and knowing how certain guys feel when they want to get back in the ring one more time and can't, um, I think I'm right.
0: How much of you – really like the idea of snaking uh, this Rick Reed contract, considering what had happened with, uh, Brian Pillman and Jeff Jarrett, you know, where both of those guys, you know, seemingly leave WCW and go to the competition. And it's not like there was a ton of warning or notice. Is this some sort of a, ha ha, we got one,
1: no. No, my motivation, again, num- part of it was personal because, again, I don't want to overstate the relationship, but part of it was that. And part of it was, holy shit, this is just going to be another one of those kicks right in the balls to the WWF. It's one more opportunity to, to kick him while they're down. And that was my approach.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Hulk Hogan. Um, this Meltzer would say with all the new money coming in with a Thursday show and his value with the moving ratings and the buy rate for the Piper match, he's going to be able to command huge money. And so he probably will. And we expect him to play all avenues, but it's hard to believe that he'll end up anywhere else. Meltzer would say the idea that the WWF would cut heart to quote, make room for Hogan's salary misses the entire point of Hogan and why the big stars are paid so much in the entertainment world. And I feel like he gets, uh, he gets right to the point here. And this is actually a point I think you'll like that Meltzer makes much as people will hate to admit this because he's out for himself and he's so bad in the ring, he's worth every penny he makes. And then some, because he draws that and more the WWF wouldn't have to cut people loose to make room for his salary because Hogan would draw in revenue every bit as much or more than he gets paid in the first place. If he couldn't, and they thought he was asking more than he could draw, he's not worth it to begin with and cutting other people's contracts wouldn't make him then worth more as far as the top players in the industry are concerned, whether it's Hogan, Savage, Hart, Austin, whoever, the idea that there is a finite budget for talent that they need to fit into like an NFL salary cap. is just ridiculous because the companies are carried by the big names. It's the mid-card guys that budgeting works with because they're generally replaceable. If using Savage as an example, WCW loses him and his estimated $1 million per year salary, does that mean there is $1 million extra to pay the other boys? No, it actually may mean there is less to pay the other boys because Savage is worth much more than just $1 million per year and losing him would be a bigger cut in company revenue than the amount saved by not paying his contract. And I feel like that is a point that even some of the boys miss where, Sometimes you hear guys go on record as saying, oh, I can't believe they're bringing in these part-timers and giving them the big match at WrestleMania. When we've been on the road all year long, the reality is they're making that decision because they think it will generate more buys and more revenue for everyone as a whole. And that's the reason they go to these outsiders. But even some folks in the business don't really see the business of professional wrestling by the way. It's
1: interesting because in last week's show, and I, I, I can't remember exactly how Dave phrased it, you you presented it for me to react to, but he, Dave's comments were exactly the opposite with regard to Hulk Hogan's value. He's not worth it. He's washed up. He's not going to draw any money. He, he's horrible. It was a bad decision. Whatever it is, you know, I have to go back and listen. And now here we are, two years later, and. Oh, he's worth whatever money that, that he can he could ask for because <laughs> because he's going to draw it. It's really funny. Um, and the the other thing that struck me is as, as you were opening up that those comments from Dave was the, the the comment that he he made when he said with all the new money coming in from Thunder, yeah. Go read Guy Evans' book. Go read it. There was no fucking money coming in for Thunder. Nobody wanted to pay for it. It cost us money. But once again, Dave, who positions himself is knowing so much about the wrestling business and convinces not only, you know, people that are, you know, naive enough to spend $12 a month for his dirt sheet um, and believe the things that he writes, but people within the industry who don't know any better. They're just as naive as a 12 year old kid that reads his dirt sheet most of the time, they think he knows what he's talking about, when in fact, he's more misinformed than the average wrestling fan because he thinks he knows what he's talking about. A re- at least, you know, the average wrestling fan has an open mind, whereas a guy like Dave Meltzer comes out and suggests that he knows what's going on in the wrestling business. In this case, there's new money coming in from Thunder. It's a freaking joke. But the point that he was making is valid after 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 he proved he knew nothing about what he was talking about with regard to the new money coming in and and finally, after recognizing for the, you know, after having spent two years of burying Hulk Hogan and burying Randy Savage and how stupid of a decision it was, and these uh, guys are washed up and are never going to draw any money, now eighteen months, twenty-four months later, he realizes how wrong he is. He's in his own way jumping on the bandwagon and looking at things from a different perspective because he has to. Um, it, it's it's not. It's not untrue. Um, now, we could do probably a whole show on that paragraph or two that you wrote. You know, when, for example, when it comes to the budgetary process, the example he gave is, you know, if if, if WCW were to cut Randy Savage in the reported $1 million uh, that he was being paid, uh, would there be a million more dollars in the budget to pay other people? Actually, there would have been. Because my budget was my budget. It was set forth 12 months in advance, ran roughly, probably nine months in advance. So in 1997, I was operating off of a budget that was set for me in the fall, third quarter usually, of 1996. And that budget was my budget. I could use that budget. I could walk right up to the line of that budget. I could, I could hold on to some of that money if I chose to, for, for whatever reason. But if I chose to spend that money on other talent i could so dave was wrong in that respect again not not unusual for dave when it comes to actual the business of the wrestling business it's something he knows very little about but in that particular case he was again wrong um it doesn't mean that i would just because i had an extra million dollars a year in the budget because Arguably, if we would have, or, or you know, let go of a piece of talent that costs us a million dollars a year, now I've got a, let's say I let him go in June of that year, I don't have a million dollars in a budget. I have half a million dollars in a budget. Um, would I have dispersed that half a million dollars in giving everybody a raise? <laughs> no. Would I have used that half a million dollars to bring in additional talent? More than likely, yes. Would I have would I have reserved that that money in the budget in case there are new contracts coming up, and I'm anticipating having to give someone else a raise uh, in the following year? Yes, I would have possibly done that, but I wouldn't have automatically dispersed. You know, it's it's, it's not you know socialism. You know, we're not all just living off the pot and we're all going to spread it around equally. And you know, it's not that. But um, he was right. You know, guys like Randy Savage. I proved it, you know, much – again, I don't want to keep just beating up on him, but two years earlier, he was burying every decision we made about bringing these guys in. Now, two years later, it's like, well, these guys are – you know, they're raising the tide. Everybody's boat is floating a little bit higher because of these guys, so they're worth it. It's interesting to hear that kind of commentary from Dave at this point.
0: You know, in fairness, though, it is a little – chicken in the egg where you know you're giving the macho man example yes your budget is your budget but if all of a sudden you guys are drawing a lot less well your budget's going to be adjusted
1: no they're not cuz those are those are contracted amounts <laughs> I mean, it's, I, you know, I don't get to go to the talent and say, well, Randy, no, 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 no. you're I'm, not I'm, really drawing like we thought we were. And I know we signed this contract, this two-year deal, and, and I know it says we're going to pay a million dollars a year. But well, hey, brother, it is what it is. We can't do it. It, it didn't work that way.
0: I'm, I'm not suggesting it does, but I'm saying when those contracts come up, if your budget has been reduced because your revenue was reduced, we've got to figure something else out with whoever's contract is coming up. The, the budget can be adjusted based on revenues. I'm not saying existing contracts are altered, but still, you know, if you, if you know what we expect this contract is coming due in February or whatever, uh, and we don't have it in the budget that fell has gone. And that budget would have only been cut because, well, you weren't drawing. Well, True. You're right, but it would have happened
1: in the in the next year. So again, let's just dig into this a little bit. So let's just let's forget about what we were doing in 1997. Let's pretend we were having a tough year, and let's just assume, again for argument's sake, that Randy Savage's contract was going to be up on January 2nd of 1998. If during the course of 1997, based on the previous year's budget or that year's budget, um excuse me, if in January of 1998 I am now working off of a budget for the rest of 1998, a talent budget, that has been reduced because we underperformed and the money's just not there to pay a Randy Savage or a Joe Blow, the amount of money that that Randy or Joe are asking for If the money's not there, it's not there because the budget has been reduced to that extent. You're right, but it would have happened a year later, right? It would have happened. It would have happened on the next contract
0: cycle. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about, um, you know, how close Hulk Hogan came to leaving. Bruce Prichard has said that he thought there was there was a real shot that WrestleMania 14 in 1998 could have been Steve Austin and Hulk Hogan And Bruce has even said that Hulk met with Vince in person around this time. But of course, over the years, it's been, uh, reported and I don't know that it's even this clandestine Hulk was taking public meetings to get you to try to pay more, or at least that's what Vince would be led to believe. Did you think there was any chance that Hogan was actually going to leave or that he was trying to play both sides against the middle to create some leverage? No,
1: absolutely not. Hulk and I had a conversation, I believe it was in Denver, after Nitro, actually we had the conversation before Nitro, and he told me he was going to go have a conversation with Vince McMahon, Vince had flown into Denver, uh, and Hulk said, Eric, here's what's going on, and it wasn't like, hey brother, I hate to tell you this, but you know, McMahon's flying in just to see me and you know, he wants me to come back. He wasn't working me. He was just being honest because he knew I'd hear about it or suspected I would. They met at a hotel somewhere away from our TV hotel. <clears throat> and he said, I'm going to go, t- I'm going to take the meeting. I'm going to hear what he has to say just because I'm interested. I'm not going anywhere. I said, it's great to take the meeting. Uh, depending on what time you get back, give me a shout. You know, if I'm still up, Let's grab a beer. If not, we'll catch up tomorrow. And I slept like a baby that night because I believed them. And the next morning, because they were out late, the next morning uh, we got together and he told me word for word, you know, what went down. Not necessarily word for word of their conversation, but he gave me a blow by blow and, you know, where they were at. He said, told you I wasn't going anywhere and I'm not. That was it. So there was no, uh, you know, I know people, you know, who were writing about it or who heard about it or the speculation and all the backstage drama that can be created with some of the stuff. But as far as I was concerned, it was like a non-issue. I, I actually thought it was really kind of interesting and slightly entertaining. It, it's just, uh, but I, I wasn't concerned at all.
0: You know, Eric has uh, recently become unemployed as all of you listening to this know. and perhaps graduation season right around the corner for a lot of college grads, maybe wondering how they're going to land their next gig. Well, here's an idea. Let job genius power your job search job. Genius offers free advice on job searching, resume, writing, interviewing, and tips to ace your first day on the job. Visit expresspros.com slash job genius today, or search for job genius on YouTube. And let their educational video series be your guide for entering the workforce. Job Genius is brought to you by Express Employment Professionals, a leading staffing company that employs more than half a million people per year. Express offers good-paying jobs and administrative roles, including customer service, sales, and accounting positions, as well as skilled labor gigs, too, like drivers, forklift operators, welders, and CNC programmers. Apply now at expresspros.com, or just call your local office, you can even complete your application over the phone. Express knows jobs, so it's time you get to know Express. An Express associate in New York said Express is far more professional than other staffing agencies and they found me work right away. A job seeker in New Jersey said Express is simply the best. They're effective, efficient and do what they say. When you apply for a job, you need a call back, an opportunity to interview. Let your local Express employment specialist help you out. Job seekers never pay a fee at Express. And each week, Express has thousands of open positions. Don't go it alone in your job search. Get to know Express. Find your local office at expresspros.com or on the Express Jobs app. Let's talk about Van Hammer. Wade Keller would report that DDP. Why?
1: Why? Why do we keep going back to Van Hammer?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm never going back to Van Hammer after Starcast. I'll tell you that. Uh, DDP uses his influence to get Van Hammer hired, or at least that's the story from Wade Keller. He's going to join Raven's flock on nitro. And, uh, Wade would say hammer wasn't previously a popular member of the locker room and he got into a fight. Well, actually got his ass whipped by Steve Regal at DDP's Christmas party last year. Uh, I don't know when we'll talk about Van hammer again. What do you remember about bringing him back in? Was he a DDP hire? And do you remember there being a fight at one of DDP's holiday parties?
1: Yeah, I had left the holiday party. Um, I had left it. It wasn't a holiday party. It was a Christmas party. I'm going to be politically incorrect, uncorrect, whatever. It was a Christmas party. And Lori and I had left. And I heard about it. It took place down in the garage, I guess. So I I don't know the details. I didn't see it firsthand. So I I don't want to comment on it too much other than it happened and I was aware of it. But, you know, Wade Keller is told the story accurately um ddp and and van hammer were friends page came to me and said look bro you you got to know page to appreciate this but when page makes his mind up about
0: something oh god he's not gonna let it go
1: dude it's like death by a thousand cuts
0: it's just it's like uh snots the dog and, and christmas vacation you just it's easier if you just let him finish
1: Exactly. Or just give in. Yeah. I I mean, at some point. (laughs) Oh my God. If he hears this, he's going to just, he's going to, he's going to be so angry and hurt if he hears this. But, but Paige, if you're listening to this, listen to it in the spirit of my intention, which is love and respect for you. Don't take it at face value. And if you hear somebody reference this conversation Take the time to listen to the context of what I'm about to say. Okay, that disclaimer aside, there's people always ask me, uh, why don't you do DDP yoga? You know, I mean, because I, you know, I like to, you know, about twice a year I make up my mind I'm going to get myself in shape and I, then I, I get really obsessed about it and I start running or I get to the gym and, you know, doing all the things I like to do. And I get really, really serious about it for about four or five or six months and I go, eh, okay, enough of that for a while. And a, a couple of these times, in fact, one time in particular, now this was in 2011 or 12, I decided I wanted to run a marathon. Cause I'd never run a marathon and I, I, I like running. I just really, really enjoy running and always have. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to check that box. And I started running and I was, I was getting up there. You know, I was running probably an average of six or eight miles a day. And then on weekends I do one long run where to get up to, you know, nine, 10, 11 miles. And, and I was kind of following this chart right or this training regimen to get conditioned for this marathon that i was going to run in september and Paige heard about it so he calls me up i was in wyoming bro bro <laughs> he, he said you, you gotta be you, you shouldn't be running because running's horrible for you you should be doing you know doing ddp yoga and I, you know, I was trying to be supportive. And, I, and by the way, you know, I've heard so many great things about his – a ton of great things about his yoga program. And, and people from you know, Chris Jericho to you know, anybody that you know, Steve Austin. I've, I've talked to a lot of people that really, really believe in it. But I had spent so many years with Diamond Dallas Page in my ear jacking his jaws about everything under the sun, that the thought of listening to him yelling at me, walking me through a yoga session was just more than I could bear. Doing the yoga, the idea of that didn't bother me. The idea of listening to that voice in my head for like an hour, two hours a day, I couldn't take it. It's the only reason I've never done it, not because it doesn't work, not because I don't love Diamond Dallas Page, but because all the time in WCW when I first got there, if I wasn't riding with Dusty, guess who I was riding with from town to town? Because Page and I worked together. We were play-by-play in color. So, I, you know, we're four, five, six, eight-hour drives. You know, he lives down the street from me. The weekends he showed up in my driveway. I always talking about wrestling. Always pushing an idea. Always, you know what I mean. He's just nonstop. You know him well enough to know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, he he started working me over about Van Hammer, and I I probably just said, okay, I
0: fuck it, I, I give up. You can have it. I can't
1: it. take it. I can't take it anymore. I'll bring him back. It's worth 150 thousand dollars a year for you just to shut up and <laughs> get off my back. Man, where
0: did Mick Foley ever get that idea you were ATM Eric, that stupid bastard?
1: Well, I mean that look, not not to be a jab <laughs> off about it, but at at that point, you know, if you were on T V on a semi regular basis, that was kind of the that's where you're I mean, here here were your your, your entry point was either fifty thousand or seventy five thousand dollars a year to train at the power plant, right? From there, you're either at a buck twenty five or a buck fifty if you're working TVs. And I mean syndicated TVs, not necessarily Nitros, um, or even WCW Saturday night. If you're working, if you're working, you know, worldwide, for example, which is our number one syndicated show, you're either at a buck twenty-five a year or a buck fifty a year. Because keep in mind you had to pay all of your own expenses for the most part if you're driving and you know, we did put, you know, some people up in hotels and things like that, but Yeah, to pay a guy 150 grand a year who was working house shows and TVs 52 weeks a year, uh, that was kind of like entry level.
0: Let's talk about, um, I guess we should mention, since we talked about Raven's flock, Stevie Richards, who came into WCW a few months earlier with Raven, and he was a part of the flock. He actually quits WCW in November. And instead, he would show up at ECW's November to remember, not long after this, What led to him quitting WCW? He's not here long, and I don't know. It felt like when he came over, he had a little bit of buzz from ECW. He was in the semi-main event at the ECW, you know, their first pay-per-view. And it felt like as the leader of the BWO, he had a little bit going for him. And then he's a sidekick here for a few months and done. Why wasn't WCW a good fit? I think he had a little bit of a.
1: He was a big fish in a little pond at ECW. Not, not, I don't mean to sound disparaging to ECW or, or to Stevie because I like Stevie. He's a tremendous talent um, in a lot of ways, but lacked a lot of charisma. I mean, physically in the ring, gifted. Um, in terms of charisma, severely lacking. And I, I, I think he probably in, in ECW had that big fish in a little pond kind of self-image. Whether he knew it or recognized it as such or not, I don't know. But when he got to WCW with the, the size and depth of our roster, he was probably didn't feel as significant as he did in the ECW locker room. And that I guess that bothered him. I don't know. It might have been something else. Steve and I never talked about it. We didn't have crosswords. We didn't have issues. He just wasn't happy. And he was gone almost as fast as he showed up.
0: I guess I uh, need to correct myself. I don't think he did show up at November to remember, but he does show up in December either way. He's out of uh, WCW here in November. Uh, the AJC would report that the WWF's federal lawsuit against WCW was thrown out of court. Uh, but that is actually incorrect. The actual story is WCW had filed a suit against the WWF for using Canadian stampede for the name of their July pay-per-view citing that it was too close to spring stampede. And that issue was settled out of court for no money. Uh, but there's an understanding that the WWF would never use the Canadian stampede name in the future at this point, you know, since it, it feels like maybe I'm wrong here. It feels like there's just a lot of petty little lawsuits back and forth. It's like, well, you sued me for that. Well, I'll sue you for this. Am I wrong on that?
1: No, you're right about that, but that's how lawsuits go. Yeah, I mean they, they were they were stacking the deck <clears throat> and trying to run up as many expenses and being as distracting as they could possibly be with their lawsuits, and we were doing the same. Unfortunately, that's why I hate lawsuits. You know the nature, especially when you've got two you know big companies with deep pockets and lots of attorneys going at it, um, it can get really expensive and silly and distracting. And that's what was going on at the time.
0: Let's talk about mean gene. He's going to be involved with the Orion food system company in, uh, South Dakota. And he's going to lend them his name. I guess he had some sort of family ties to the company and they use his name to create four or five franchises called Mean jeans, burgers. Uh, what do you think of Mean jeans burgers? You ever have one? I did. I did. I
1: can't remember the name of the town I was in, but it was in western Minnesota, probably not too far from the South Dakota border. I may—I I want to say it might have been in Wheaton, Minnesota, um, or a small town very close to Wheaton, Minnesota, where actually my brother and I and a couple of my buddies used to go duck hunting in the fall, and I was—I <laughs> had flown up there to Minnesota. Uh, to go duck hunting and we were driving around looking for something to eat in the middle of the afternoon and i saw mean jean's burgers and i stopped in and i had a bunch of them we had a blast took a couple pictures it was awesome Uh, so i actually ate at a mean jean burgers in western minnesota
0: by the way if you're interested you can still buy a mean jeans burgers t-shirt from pro wrestling tees And while you're there, you should go to ericbischoff.com. We've got some great new shirts over there, including one of my favorites in the style of the old straight out of Compton theme. We've got straight out of catering available for you now. We've also got 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff fashioned like the old school WCW slash NWO logo. Maybe the coolest shirt that we're selling these days. Unfuck withable. You got to see this shirt. Uh, It doesn't read like a curse word, but it certainly is. And of course, lots of old fun stuff, including big bag of sting. Easy does it. I don't debate the dead. Mabel was the third man fired the Vince McMahon inspired bird faced punk t-shirt put me over, uh, lots of fun stuff. Check it out. Eric It makes a great stocking stuffer this holiday season for the wrestling fan in your life. Uh, Wade Keller would also report that WCW is planning to add a tough man division, like a no holds barred division. And, uh, you know, obviously we know that doesn't actually come to fruition. We've talked about you having conversations with different MMA athletes along the way. Ultimately, was this an idea that you were going to try on thunder or why does it not wind up happening?
1: Uh, it was an idea that we were discussing. Um, I don't recall why we didn't do it. I don't think there was any one reason why we didn't do it. It's just. You know, like a lot of ideas that you begin to explore and you dig into them, and you try to uh, to build upon them and look at the advantages, disadvantages, risks, rewards, etc. And I just never was an idea that really um, that ultimately made sense to me. I liked it. Part of me liked it. You know, UFC and and all of that was getting a little bit of traction, a lot of traction at least. Um, And it was something that I was really considering, but it just, it, it, it just never really clicked completely for me.
0: Let's talk about your prodigy, chat. It went down on November 18th. I want to hit some of the highlights and, uh, I'm going to read you what you said at the time and then let you sort of address it in hindsight regarding the contract status of wrestlers. Again, I've addressed this in the past. The giant is going to be here for at least another year, possibly a year and a half on his current deal. I don't have the dates off the top of my head. Hogan's agreement runs through the end of 98. I was down in Tampa this past weekend, and I'm currently talking to Hogan about extending for a minimum of another year, possibly another two years. But his current agreement runs through 1998. And we fully expect Ric Flair to be with WCW for the next three years. Um, how often were you being asked about the contract status of wrestlers? Is this. I mean is this really the first time it comes up this often because at this point it does feel like guys are just jumping back and forth constantly and that's a relatively new phenomenon because that hadn't always been the case in professional wrestling well <clears throat> I, I think it was
1: the case where you know wrestlers were moving from territory to territory back in the territory days. That was the nature of the industry back then. I think when, when the territories uh, disappeared and it was really just WWF and WCW, there was some back and forth, you know, most notably Ric Flair leaving WCW and taking the belt and going to WWF is one example. It didn't happen as often, certainly as it did in 1997, but it wasn't new. I just think it became more important by 1997 in addition to it becoming more important because of the nature of the competition and the fact that WCW was, you know, outperforming the WWF and the Monday night wars were beginning to, to peak. So the the transition of talent back and forth was more newsworthy in 1997 than it possibly was in 1991. In addition to becoming more frequent, uh, but prodigy chats and social media was just beginning to emerge in 1997, so I think the the ability to talk to someone like me and Bob Ryder, I think, was the person that really pioneered the prodigy chat, um, and I, I guess in his own way was one of the first people to really kind of create this platform where you could, in a real time, you know, have conversations with people in the industry. Uh, as opposed to reading, you know, a a, a newsletter. Um, so it 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 was beginning to be a subject of discussion much more frequently by nineteen ninety seven. But again, I, I think it's because of the nature of the, the business at that point in time most notably the Monday night wars and the battle between WCW and WWF where, you know, between Lex Luger jumping and Hogan coming over and Savage coming over and so much talent, you know, coming to WCW. And then subsequently talent moving back over to WWF was probably more newsworthy than anything else in the industry at that time.
0: Let's talk about, um, advertising. We love talking about the business aspect of wrestling here on the show Uh, You would say we're adding new advertisers all the time. Probably one of the biggest ones is Valvoline. We'll continue to expand the base of advertisers in WCW programming. Again, it's important for everyone in the industry to recognize advertisers in general are resistant to wrestling because of the negative stereotypes associated with it. If Eric Bischoff and the Turner organization and Vince McMahon of the USA Network and Paul Heyman and the people he's associated with want to continue to exist, We need to recognize that if we run off advertisers, we're running ourselves off of television.
1: How much of that is... how, how How brilliant was I? How clairvoyant was I? And here we are today, the largest, most successful, publicly held $5 billion wrestling company with a global footprint. And I guarantee you, That that, that is a a mantra that they live by. But here I was espousing it in 1997, long before WWF, which later became WWE, realized that their form of entertainment and and the kind of things that they were doing in the ring were running off advertisers. And here we are today in the PG era. And goddamn, I was a smart son of a bitch back in 1997, wasn't I?
0: I can't argue too much with that quote. Let's talk about what you said about Vince McMahon. I think Vince McMahon really believes his own BS. It surprises me that nobody else. It surprises me if anybody else believes it. There we go. I've read a lot. I've heard a lot about why Vince decided to double cross Brett and lie right to his face. And I know what really happened. Brett knows what really happened. Vince McMahon, Jim Ross, and the company knows what really happened. Brett Hart for the past 14 or 15 years has demonstrated time and time again his commitment, his work ethic, his love to this industry, his loyalty to the WWF, and his integrity as a man. I fully expected after my conversation with Brett a few weeks ago that Brett would have retained his integrity, his love for the business, and his loyalty to the WWF. I wouldn't have asked otherwise, and for Vince to do what he did was another act of desperation, paranoia, and self-indulgence. And when... The follow-up is, would you have handled it differently? You said, I'm not sure. I really haven't given that any thought, although it's an interesting scenario. It's just too difficult for me to say right now. The situation within my business at WCW is so much different that I have a hard time imagining myself being in the position that McMahon was in. I think when it comes right down to it, I would have had no choice but to trust Brett to do the right thing before he left Titan. Brett's track record, as I said earlier, would have given me the confidence to take that risk. And there are only a handful of wrestlers, maybe two handfuls, that I would have that confidence in clearly. There are some in this business that I wouldn't trust, but without question, Brett Hart is on the list that I would trust. What do you think of your, uh, your statements here and sort of a uh, nudge and Vincent ran a little bit. Yeah,
1: that was a little bit of
0: me branding
1: myself for WCW. I, 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 I think about. 80% of that was sincere. Um, 20% of it was a shot across the bow. Um, and, and, and I, gosh, you know, hearing, it's so interesting hearing you read quotes from me back then and trying to, and I, here I am now, I'm sitting here trying, what was going through my mind when I said that? Because, <laughs> because here, here's, here's the truth. Um, I didn't know Brett that well in 1997 I, I came off listening to that quote I came off like I sounded like I did right I perhaps wanted to believe I did and maybe I I, I think not maybe I think to a large degree I really felt that way because I really did believe that Brett was an honorable guy and I've always you know look I've always had a strong instinct about people and, and I, I, I rush to judgment pretty quickly when I'm in a room with somebody, I either, I either feel pretty good about them or I don't pretty quickly. And I'm right about 75 or 80% of the time, at least I think I am. And, and I, I, I move forward according, accordingly and I felt good about Brett. I, I felt like he was an honest guy and, and, and I still do, honestly, I, I believe that Brett believes the things that he says. I don't think Brett, I never thought Brett, even when we were at the, you know, kind of peak of our, you know, (laughs) verbal sparring back and forth in social media. um, I've never thought of Brett as a dishonest person, but here's the truth. I wasn't there. I wasn't in Vince McMahon's shoes. I didn't hear the conversations. I wasn't looking Brett in the eye when those conversations about how they were going to handle the situation were taking place. And since I wasn't in the room, I didn't have any insight into those conversations. It's really hard for me to judge whether Vince made the right decision or not. I know the conversations that i had with brett i know what i told brett and 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 i made it clear to brett as i alluded to just you know a little bit a little while ago in this podcast he didn't need the belt he didn't need to come to wcw with the belt the fact is because of all the litigation that was going on at the time had brett showed up with that wwf belt which was a trademark piece of property of WWF at the time, I would have had my balls cut off and stuffed down my throat by Turner broadcasting attorneys. There was no way I was going to try, even if I wanted to, if it had happened three years earlier. Yeah, I probably would have, Two years earlier. Yeah, I probably would have. If the opportunity would have availed itself, I would have probably, if I could have talked Brett, which I don't think I could have talked him into, and I'm pretty sure I couldn't. In fact, I know that I could. I'll go out on a limb. I know that I could have talked Brett into, you know, walking away with that belt so that I could take it on WCW TV and, and pull a Medusa and drop it in the trash. Brett would not have taken part in that. I believe that. But even if he would have, in 1997, the people that I worked for wouldn't have allowed it. That would have been the end of my career at Turner at that point. So there was, it was totally unnecessary for Vince to do what he did. But guess what? Vince didn't know that because my pattern of behavior – starting with giving away finishes and doing all the other kind of unorthodox things that I did to, to make noise and get on the map and create that water cooler buzz that I was talking about earlier. All of that crazy shit. Medusa showing up, throwing the title in the trash. I don't blame him for thinking that I was going to do something ridiculous because I've been doing ridiculous shit for a long time that was driving him crazy, and I was kicking his ass in the process. So I, I kind of think he, you know, Vince he had to do what he had to do, but the sad part is it was all totally unnecessary because it, 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 well, I'll just let it go at that. It, it was unnecessary.
0: Here's what's necessary that we actually talk about the pay-per-view since we've been going for more than an hour and a half. Let's get to world war three, Ming and barbarian going to open up our first match, getting a win over glacier and Ernest Miller. It earns a dud rating in nine minutes and nine seconds. I got to tell you, I think the world of Ming and barbarian in real life have had an opportunity to meet both and they could not be more pleasant individuals. However, I can't tell you that I've ever enjoyed one of their matches. And this is no exception, not the best match here. What'd you think? God
1: you took the words kind of out of my mouth. Same thing. I mean, I, I, I love them both. I still, you know, I, I still, I see them both, uh, you know, on the circuit probably a couple times of the year, a couple times out of the year, uh, of the is, you know, reputations aside. And if, I guess if you got on their, their wrong side or you offended them or you did the wrong thing, it could probably be the worst day or possibly the last day of your life. But if you're reasonably respectful and polite, they're, two of the sweetest guys you'll ever be around. They really, really are consistently. Um, that said, you know, their, their style, again, this is now 1997, and these guys are probably on the last couple of years of their career the peaks of, of their careers, their respective careers were probably, you know, late 90, early 80s, early 90s when, you know, big, tough, powerful, scary-looking Samoans, you know, were, were great characters and had a place in the business. But their ring work inside of the ring, if they weren't just brawling and beating the shit out of you, which isn't really aesthetically that much fun to watch, uh, left a lot to be desired. And now exacerbate that by putting them in the ring with two relatively green guys in both Ernest and uh, Glacier who are themselves. Now, Ernest was a little bit different. If you go back and watch this match, you know, full disclosure, Ernest is one of my favorite people in the business. I love him. He's like family. <clears throat> Not only to me, but to my son and my daughter, and my, my wife, we're, we're very close. So I may have a little bit of a Jaded view of Ernest, but as objective as I can be, go back and look at this match. And Ernest is a big guy. He's deceptively big, by the way. You know, when you look at him, because he's not jacked up, he's not cut up. He doesn't look like, you know, a, a typical '90s, you know, big man wrestler. But he's a good 240, 245, and he's bottom heavy. And by the way, so is Glacier. I mean, he's got big, thick, powerful legs. He was a linebacker in the NFL and college football. He's a he's a big, strong dude. And a lot of the things that Ernest in particular was doing, the jump spin back kicks, by the way. You don't see too many two hundred and forty pound guy, you see 160 pound guys doing that kind of shit. And I'm talking even on, on on the you know in mixed martial arts or on the you know. Amateur karate circuits, you'll see 130, 140, 160 pound guys all day long doing jump spin back kicks. You don't see too many 250 pounders pulling it off. And Ernest can, and very effectively, both in real life and in the ring. But when you put a guy like Ernest and Glacier in a match with two guys like Megan Barbarian that ate really aren't comfortable working that cell or don't have a lot of experience working it and be aren't selling it at all, which is the case here, not only do Ming and Barbarian not really look that interesting, but because they're not really selling for Glacier or for Ernest, and I have to say you know, Ray Ray Lloyd is also one of the classiest people in the business, but his martial arts, his in-ring martial arts for for WCW wasn't nearly as effective as Ernest. Uh, again Ray's a big guy and he was doing a lot of things from a martial arts perspective that a big guy shouldn't have been trying to do. He should have been sticking to more, you know, for example, he do that spin, you know, leg sweep, did that very, very effectively. And that's typically not a big man's move, right But the, the, but the minute that Ray uh, or glacier would start doing the jump spin type stuff, he just couldn't get enough air to make it look dynamic. And here's here's the tricky part about trying to do martial arts in the ring is people have seen so many Jackie Chan movies. They've seen so much really cool uh, martial arts in film where you're shooting it from 20 different angles, 35 different takes, stunt people, you know, special effects, you know, all kinds of different ways, camera angles that you can use in a movie that you can't do in, you know, professional wrestling or sports entertainment. That the minute you try to do a martial arts type presentation in a wrestling ring, it's really, really difficult to live up to the expectations that so many martial arts movies and now video games have kind of set. So in other words, if you're not doing something that, you know, kids have grown up, you know, playing Mortal Kombat have seen. It's not that cool. And so I think you know the timing was a little bit bad for for Ernest and Glacier. They were two really big guys that were trying to do things that were really dynamic and spectacular and visually stimulating. That they probably, at least in Ray's case, weren't really capable of doing all that well. Ernest was, Ray wasn't. Now add them to guys like Ming and Barbarian, who A have never really worked that kind of a match, and B weren't selling for it. It's just flatline. That was a hell of a breakdown of that match.
0: By the way, if you need a more detailed breakdown of a Ming barbarian match, find another fucking podcast that can match that one. Uh, let's talk about DDP. He's up here being interviewed by WCW.com about the battle Royal. And then we've got Perry Saturn going to defend his WCW TV title here against disco Inferno. Always been a big fan of Perry Saturn. Uh, his in-ring work I thought was really, really well done. Disco Inferno has always been a great character. But for whatever reason, this was a little bit of a miss. Uh quarter star is what this one gets in the observer. It goes eight minutes, 19 seconds. Of course, Perry Saturn gets the win. And of course your boy hammer's involved. Chat me up. what did you think of this one?
1: I, I was really disappointed. I, you know, just goes the guy that kind of begs to be, you know, beat up upon, you know, when we talk about him, because his character, I mean, he tried to make you hate him so much and he was so good at it. He, he, he was so good at being obnoxious. And even to this day, he kind of, you know, he's a parody of himself in some, some respects in some of the things that he's done or in the interviews that he's done. He's a great, great. And all that, by the way, is a compliment because he's a very smart guy and a very talented guy. Uh, And he, and he understands a big part of the business that a lot of people today don't. But, this and and let me talk about Perry Saturn. I was excited to hire Perry because Perry was really believable. The first conversation I ever had with Perry Saturn, when he first came in, we talked about his military service, and we must have talked for an hour and a half or two hours. And just in talking to him and getting to know him, he was such a real cat. I mean, he, and I I really really liked him. I what I didn't care what he did and in ECW, I just saw a lot of reality and believability in him. He, he, he really wa- he really was in many respects, his character. He wasn't pretending to be a wrestler. You know, that's one thing that's funny that I just said that, not funny that I just said that, but it's the first time I've said that out loud in a long time. One of the things that I learned working with Vern Gagne, because I used to hear Vern say it, is, you know, you're, and I don't, not, saying it word for word the way Vern did. But in the course of doing interviews and promos, Vern would say something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing here for those of you that are listening and want to bust my balls in dirt sheets, that you know Vern was really good at pointing out how sometimes wrestlers were pretending to be wrestlers and not being themselves. Now, what he was really saying, without saying it the same way I'm about to, is you've got to become your character much like a method actor becomes a character when, when, when a really good, you know, when Joaquin Phoenix decided he was going to take the part of the Joker, not that I'm friends with Joaquin Phoenix and have ever talked to him about it, but based on what I've read and heard anecdotally, you know, he, he became that character 24 hours a day. And that's what you do when you want to have that level of performance. Now, wrestlers aren't necessarily required to be able to perform at that level. But nonetheless, when you are a performer, when you're a wrestling character who, who really feels and believes that character and that character is really part of you, it, it resonates. You know, Ric Flair, I think is such a, will always be such an icon in this business because there's a, there's a part of that Ric Flair character that Richard Fleer really believes. You know what I'm saying? You know, stone cold Steve Austin didn't become stone cold Steve Austin until he quit trying to be the ringmaster or a Hollywood blonde or stunning Steve. When he found his real care, when he found his real voice and he wasn't pretending to be something else, and he could find a way to turn the volume up on Steve Williams, it stuck, it clicked. And I'm not suggesting that Perry Saturn had that same level uh, of ability to connect with the audience as, as you know Stone Cold did, but nonetheless, he 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 was real. That character that you saw with Perry Saturn. There was a large part of that that was real, and, believe, and, and it was believable because it was real. He wasn't acting. He wasn't performing. You know, I think a lot of the talent that we see today, unfortunately, either because they're being directed and kind of pushed into a character or a presentation that is so antithetical to who they really are, or they're just not comfortable with it, and they're not good enough actors or actresses to really pull it off. It just doesn't stick with the audience, but when you find those characters that you know can really play it close to the bone, and be a character, but be a character that's kind of true to who they really are, and they really believe in their character, it, that's where the magic happens. The and, that was, and and I'm, I was going to say, and now just to button it up, and that's what I like so much about Perry Saturn. Now this match left me flat. It, it really did. I, I kind of, in watching it, I kind of went, you know, I I don't think either one of these two guys were really into this match. Because I know Disco, when he's, when he's in it, or well, when, when he was in it, you know, in 97, when he was really excited, when he was engaged, when he connected to what was going on in the story and the match that he was in and his opponent, he could have a hell of a performance and be really, in his own way, in his own way, one of the most entertaining characters on the roster, but watching this match, it was like, they both just, you know, phoned it in.
0: Speaking of phoning it in, we see mean gene in the back, plugging his hotline before he brings in the giant giant has a bandage on his right hand, thanks to a broken thumb courtesy of a Scott hall attack on nitro. And he says the broken thumb won't stop him from making hall pay the price tonight. And uh, next up, we've got Yuji Nagata and Ultimo Dragon. And the stipulation here is if Ultimo Dragon wins, he gets five minutes along with Sunny Ono. Of course, Yuji Nagata wins. They got 12 minutes, 45 seconds. I thought this was maybe the best match on the card. I am an unapologetic Ultimo Dragon mark. I think he's such a special talent, way ahead of his time. Yuji Nagata at the time, I could not appreciate. In hindsight now, I realize... How incredible of a performer he was as well. Uh, this is something you deserve to be applauded for. Really, really great wrestling here on the undercard of the show with Yuji and Ultimo.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that I really realized even watching this show, because like you, you know, I'm an, I've always been an Ultimo Dragon fan. But I don't think it was as clear to me why uh, until I watched this particular match. And I, I touched on it earlier in this podcast, but if you if you look at Ultimo Dragon, compare Ultimo Dragon to Rey Mysterio. Physically, they they match up pretty well, right? They both have they both have a similar uh, Japanese, or at least Ultimo has the potential of delivering a lot of the high-flying kind of lucha, you know, athleticism and presentation. That Ray does, I, I would give, I would, I would probably give the nod to Ray in terms of the diversity in his, you know, his offense and some of the things he's capable of doing or was back then. But very, very similar in terms of their lucha abilities. But the thing that Ultimo has or had that Ray didn't have was the ability to shift gears and get into more of a hard style um, Japanese performance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So Ultimo was more divert. He had all of the abilities. I almost, not almost, not all of the abilities. I, again, I would tip my, my, my hand to Ray in terms of having more of a kind of a Lucha repertoire, but Ultimo wasn't far behind, not far behind at all. But when it came to the ability to shift gears, And have that kind of hard style Japanese presentation, Ultimo was light years ahead of Ray. And I just, those two guys together, I think when when you have them on the same card, you're going to have a good paper. I don't care what the other 10 matches look like, you're going to have a good pay-per-view.
0: Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. We've got another great match. You talked about it earlier. It's probably your favorite. It's uh, the Steiner brothers taking on Dave Taylor and Steve Regal. Of course the Steiner's are the tag champs and they're going to retain. They get a big reaction coming out. They're also local. Uh, Meltzer would say that there's not much heat in the match, but the work is solid, lots of interesting offense in this one as well. Two stars. Uh, Rick is going to pin Regal after the sky high bulldog off the top. I'm a Steiner mark. I love watching Steve Regal and Dave Taylor wrestle like you. So to me, this is two in a row where maybe I wasn't overly enthused with the first two matches on the show. The second two, match three and four, they've really made up for it for me.
1: Yeah, I, I love this one too. And I probably like it more now than I did back then because I appreciate different styles of wrestling actually more today than I did back then you know to me it was you know, what's the most dynamic what's the crowd reacted to the most where are we making our most money and sometimes when you think that way when i thought that way i'll speak for myself when i was thinking that way i was sometimes not appreciating to the extent that i probably should have the diversity that some talent brought to the ring and clearly the case here with regal and taylor when i was a, a young kid growing up in minneapolis in my my mid-teens, late teens, and watching AWA and probably—I don't want to say the peak of my wrestling fandom, but close to it. One of the guys that I used to really love watching, and I've said—you know—I've dropped names before. The guys that really impressed me the most at the very, very, very top of that list was Nick Bockwinkel, and then you know, below that, you know, Vern Gagne to a degree, you know, before before his later years. <clears throat> ray stevens was a huge huge fan of ray stevens and by the way side note fortunate to be able to say i got to hang with him and have a couple beers with him and go pheasant hunting with him and get to know him on a personal basis wahoo mcdaniels same thing uh but another one was billy robinson i loved watching billy robinson And Billy was that man of a thousand holes. You know, that's how he was promoted in the AWA. He was a scientific wrestler. That's how they referred to a technical wrestler back in the day, in my day, I should say. And Billy was that, British, you know, didn't wasn't all jacked up, didn't have the superstar Billy Graham or Jesse the Body Ventura kind of road warrior physique, none of that kind of stuff. But he would get in the ring with you and he would just work you over and work you over and he would work holes and, you know, tie you up in knots and all that kind of stuff. And that's one of the reasons why, even to this day, I love going back and watching Steve Regal matches and Dave Taylor matches, because that's the style and the diversity of presentation that they brought to the ring. And, um, I don't think it gets enough appreciation. And by the way, it didn't get enough appreciation for me at the time. So sorry about that.
0: Mean jeans in the hallway with JJ Dillon and Dillon says if Raven doesn't sign an official WCW contract within 24 hours, he will no longer be allowed to appear on WCW programming. And Jean says that Raven, isn't the sort of guy you'd run into at the country club, uh, next up we've got Raven and Scotty Riggs. It's eight minutes and 43 seconds. Raven is going to announce it has to be a Raven's rules match, or he's not going to wrestle. Of course, that means it's gotta be no DQ, which means the flock can interfere and they do. Um, you've got Saturn and Kidman and everybody here. Ultimately though, uh, it's not enough. Raven is going to get the win. Of course, Riggs was a former part of the flock. He's trying to break out here. Van Hammer is going to carry Riggs from the ring into the crowd. And Meltzer would say, "I guess to signify them kidnapping his soul, three quarters of a star." I feel bad because I didn't love this one. Because I know Scotty Riggs listens to this listens to the show, and he's a great guy. And I think the world of Raven and and the man behind the character. But for me, I thought both of these guys had had better matches. For whatever reason, something here, and maybe it was just the creative with all the interference. I just didn't love it.
1: God, I looked at it completely differently because I'm, I'm, you know, the, the whole. And I, I'm, I'm with you. You know, Scotty Riggs is a great guy. I don't know him very, very well, but he, he what I do know of him, he's a. He's a class guy, good guy. Raven, <laughs> I, I saw him at Starcast, and every time I see him, he looks at me like, oh, you, you fucker, you bury me every time you talk about me in a podcast. And I don't, I don't mean to do that, but his character was a character that I just could never get. And I kept trying it because I thought, well, just because I don't get it doesn't mean that the audience doesn't like it. So let's give it a whirl. But the more I tried it, the more I was convinced it just doesn't work. It was too dark. There was nothing inspiring. I couldn't love it and I couldn't hate it. I was ambivalent towards it. I didn't give a flying fuck about anything that his character did. And not because I didn't like Scott Levy. It's just the presentation. There was no emotion in it. His character was an unemotional kind of dead-to-the-world character. How in the world are you? would anybody expect an audience to go, yeah, I want to see that guy win, or no, I want to see that guy get his ass kicked? You just don't give a fuck. And that's generally the way I felt about that whole flock thing. Right. Again, as is me, other people may have dug it. And I, 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 guess, but having said all that, I thought this was a great match. I didn't like the finish. The finish took me out of it completely. I agree with you. The finish fucked it. If, if the, if they would have had a cleaner finish, a more complex finish or something that would have made me go, wow, I didn't see that coming then I probably would have been all over this match and jumping up and down, telling you how great it was. But take the finish out of it. Look at the first, I don't know how long the match was. I didn't write it down, probably 12, 14 minutes. Let's just say it was 12 minutes. I thought the first nine of it was some of the best work I've seen out of either one of these guys. Scotty was inspired first third of this match, first 30% of this match, act one, as I like to say. In act one of this match, um, he, he looked great. Scotty looked great. It wasn't until we got to Act 3 that things started falling apart for me, and unfortunately, that's what happens when you look at a match like this, and it may start out hot, you may have some great stuff in the middle in Act 2, but if the finish is for just, eh, you don't care about it, and by the time it's over, it's anticlimactic, you're left with feeling like, eh, waste of time. And that's, unfortunately... Probably how, how most of the audience felt about it, but I thought the actual in-ring performance, if you break it down and look at it closely again, take act three out, just looked at act one and act two was pretty, pretty damn good.
0: The next match. I don't think you'll say the same thing about Steve McMichael and Alex, Wright. they go three minutes and 36 seconds. McMichael comes out with a lead pipe and says that Bill Goldberg, his scheduled opponent wouldn't be there. And the cameras panned to the back with Goldberg passed out on the floor. Meltzer would say in reality, he couldn't wrestle due to a groin injury. What's Mongo's excuse. He says, McMichael challenged anyone in the dressing room to come out. Deborah McMichael came out dragging a reluctant Alex, Wright to the ring. Alex didn't want to probably come out, probably scared to death that another dud match would hurt his batting average. This match was terrible, but at least it was shorter than their previous one. Uh, but not quite as bad. Negative one star Steve McMichael gets the win with a tombstone piledriver, dude. What's the point of even having this on pay-per-view?
1: First off, I think Steve McMichael was probably a better wrestler than Dave Meltzer is a reporter. Number one,
0: boy, that's th- them's fighting words right there.
1: I hope so. God from, from your mouth to God's ears. Um, I, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to be, you know, here we go. I look, take, take what, take what you think you know about Steve McMichael and what you think you know about, about Alex, Wright. I look, if I put this match in context, I look, I look at this match. I look, here's Steve McMichael, who he was two years into the business. Started out as an announcer, right? Didn't spend 15, 10, 12 years in the indie circuit, 15 years, you know, didn't have all that experience. And if I look at this match in that context, I just don't think this match was that bad. It, it, I actually thought it was pretty decent. There was a good story. Deborah dragging Alex out. Alex was reluctant. He didn't want to get in the ring with Steve. This was all about Deborah wanting to get the Super Bowl ring back. And it may have been a corny story. I'm not suggesting the story was' all that great. But there was psychology. There was story. There was a reason for this match to happen. And the fact that the the fact that, you know Deborah had to drag Alex to the ring made him a chicken shit which, you know, creates emotion in the audience. So there was there was enough meat on the bone from a story perspective. Again, corny as it may be, I'm not judging the quality of the story, but at least there was story there, which is more than I can say for a lot of the stuff that I see on TV even today. At least there was story there or an attempt to make a story. And the characters kind of made sense and they kind of played their roles okay. Now let's take the story part out of the equation. Let's just break down the action in the ring. There was a couple botched moves, and by the way, they were subtle. There was the timing was off. Guess what? We're going to talk about a match between Ray Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero that had some of the same issues. Now, granted, I'm not comparing the two matches, so don't you know? Don't go off of me here. But you know, overall, I. I I think with the exception of a couple timing issues in this match and then put it in the context of a guy in Steve McMichael that has really only been working in the ring for 18 months or two years on a very limited basis, by the way, not working six or seven nights a week on house shows. I thought the match was pretty good. It didn't bother me.
0: Wow. Next up, we got Andy Guerrero. And Rey Mysterio, as you might imagine, this is the best match on the show. If you're going to watch one match from this show, it's gotta be this one. It gets four stars in the observer. They get plenty of time, 12 minutes, 42 seconds. You know, they just tore the house down at Halloween havoc the month prior. I still think that one's one of the best matches of all time, but this is pretty damn good had the Halloween havoc show not existed. You gotta think this would have been, you know, their best match. Uh, Mike Tanay points out on commentary: There's a poster in the crowd about this being the three-year anniversary of the death of Eddie Guerrero's former partner, Arn Bar. Uh, lots of intricate spots here, incredible fro- frog splashes and power bombs, and they're pulling out all the stops. I absolutely love it. Eddie gets the win; he retains the cruiserweight title. I don't think it mattered to me who won. I mean, this was such a good match that by the end, uh, I was just glad I got to see it
1: yeah I agree with you I mean I I mean I agree with you all the way across the board I think the the Halloween havoc match was absolutely the best I mean that match was so crisp and the pace was so fast and there was there was nothing that wasn't spectacular about that match. this match wasn't quite as good and there were a couple beats if you go back and really break this match down and look at it very very closely you'll 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 find probably two or three. Um, spots in this match where timing was a little off, positioning was a little off. Um, Once or twice, either Eddie or Ray, I couldn't really tell which one, wasn't really sure where they were at, but they made up for it so quickly that unless you really put this match under a microscope, you wouldn't recognize it. Uh, I'm I'm being super critical here because this match is fantastic. And by any other standard, or by all other standards, uh, probably one of the best you've seen that year.
0: No doubt about it. Uh, next up, we see a video hyping Hogan and Sting the following month at Starcade. uh, but our, our next match is Kurt over Ric Flair in 17 minutes and 57 seconds. I get plenty of time, two and a half stars. Meltzer would say this was a weird match. And then as it was laid out, it appeared to be a great match. The crowd was in into Flair when he came out, but when the crowd recognizes he's no longer the old Flair and the match slows down, they seem to lose interest. I thought the match was okay. Uh, eventually, Flair comes off the top uh, to the floor with a double sledge like uh, Randy Savage, which is a pretty dangerous move, especially when you're 48 years old. Melzer would say it appears his ankle went out and he's limping badly there for a while. Um,. I don't know this one to me i I don't, I don't I hate to speak ill of the dead as you like to say here on the show I don't think Kurt had a great match in WCW and I felt like if this was the Kurt of old him and Rick could have tore it up he could have made up for whatever steam flair had lost but it looks like both of these guys are on the decline here a little bit but I enjoyed the storyline piece of it I suppose um what do you think of this one? <laughs>
1: man you, you and I are seeing this one exactly the same way but I, I I oh God this is so hard for me oh I think it's I think it was more Kurt than Rick yeah I, I Kurt it' just Kurt wasn't Kurt in this match let me just I'm gonna leave it at that I got to leave it at that uh, I just I was disappointed in it when I saw it because, again, I thought, oh, great. I can see Kurt Hennig Ric Flair. But there's very few people who I enjoyed watching more than Kurt Henning. A small handful of people. Ric Flair is one of them. And one, you know, I thought, okay, great. This is going to be a great one to watch and talk about. And I went, ah. Oh. <sighs> Neither one of them delivered what they were capable of delivering. Let's just leave it at that.
0: Let's keep it going. Let's talk about what's next here on the show. Um, I guess before we do, we should mention that this is a continuation of their feud, which started back at Fall Brawl in September. You may remember Kurt was supposed to be a member of the Horseman, he accepted Arn Anderson's spot. So he's representing the horsemen in the NWO uh war games match. And he turns his head on he turns on Rick, slams his head in the cage door. They wrestle a Halloween Havoc, they're supposed to wrestle one here. And then again, at Starcade, of course, we know there's going to be an audible that needs to be called. There, uh, allegedly Rick signed a new contract just a few days before this event, and I thought he worked hard, but to your point, I agree. It wasn't as good as maybe it could have been. And some of that probably belongs on Kurt, maybe more so than Rick next up though, this is all really here. We've got 60 dudes. We've got three men and, uh, the world war three match. There's 60 men in three rings. And this is quite the roll call here. Diddy P, Ray Trailer, Alex Wright, Disco Inferno, Ming, uh, Los Fianos 4 and 5, Chris Benoit, Dave Finley, La Parca, Steve Regal, Public Enemy, Dave Taylor, Ultima Dragon, Norman Smiley, Louis Bacoli, Hector Garza, Liz Mark Jr., The Giant, Chris Adams, Greg Valentine, Eugene Nagata, Chris Jericho, Juventud Guerrero, Wrath, Harlem Heat, the Steiners, Jim Duggan, Hugh Morris, Lex Luger, Ernest Miller, Brad Armstrong, Silver King, Prince Ikea, Mortis, Barbarian, Eddie Guerrero, Damian, Barry Darso, Dane Malenko, Vincent, John Nord, Kendall Windham, El Dandy, sorry, Mysterio, Jr. Lope, who's still dressed up like Halloween. Mongo McMichael, Renegade, Chavo Guerrero, super Calo, Glacier, Bobby fucking blaze. Marcus Bagwell, (laughs) Kurt Henning, Randy Savage. Now, Flair is not here due to the injury. So I guess that's really 59 guys, not 60. Conan was advertised, but he's not here. He's got a herniated disc, tendinitis in the foot. Scott Norton is missing with a knee. Kevin Nash is missing with a knee, but you've got a ton of guys here. They're going to go 29 minutes, 48 seconds. Ultimately Scott Hall wins and Meltzer would say they changed the rules at the last minute. No longer did you have to go over the top rope, as had been the battle royal rule since the beginning of the time. But now, once your feet touched the floor and you could go under the ropes, etc., you were eliminated. I guess this was because some of the guys couldn't get out of there without taking a bump, and it was a test pattern for about 19 minutes and 25 seconds, although it wasn't as impossible to follow as the previous two years. But it was probably less interesting, though. With all the new talent involved, not one received any remnant of a push or focus. The Mexicans were basically comedy figures, mostly eliminated by the giant. The only newcomer to get a reaction was Duggan, who really doesn't qualify as a newcomer. Uh, the giant would win th- uh, would w- win ring three, drop kicking Ming out, and he waited until the other rings cleared when they all got in one ring. It was the entire NWO against the WCW team of page Rick Steiner Luger giant and Booker T. You can imagine that things get a little interesting. Um, Scott halls in the middle of the ring points to the back, the NWO music comes on and the announcers are expecting Nash instead of Nash it's Hogan who comes out, who immediately slams the giant and begins giving page some low blows. Nash comes down from the ceiling and Sting get up. And poor Tony Schiavone had to kill his credibility by trying to sell that this 6 foot 10 guy was Sting. Hogan ran away from <laughs> him, thus eliminated from a match he was never in, and Page rolled out Nash hit Giant with the bat and they got rid of him, which left Hall as the winner. Nash then took the Sting mask off revealing himself, and after the match Conan, Norton, Eric Bischoff and the rest of the nwo joined for a celebration which included Hogan giving page his own diamond cutter. So we're looking for a lot of heat here. You know, Hogan's here unannounced, which is kind of cool. Sting's going to come down, but in fact, it's Kevin Nash. And then, you know, DDP got hit with his own diamond cutter by Hogan. We're definitely doubling down on the heat. You saw it this week for the first time in a long time. What'd you think?
1: I love the last minute and a half. <clears throat> and I say that because, you know, look, we're, we were building this WCW versus NWO story, and clearly this pay-per-view helped build that story, mm-hmm. continued to build that story. Uh, it did get a lot of heat. It was a little bit different. And, you know, I'm not a fan. I've said it a million times. Anybody that has ever listened to this podcast or had a beer with me knows I hate gimmick matches. I just really, really do. I was not a fan of this. But we were married to it. And I think it came off as, as, as good as Look, I don't even like, I hate battle royals. Show me a battle royal that for the first, you know, 75% of the battle royal looks good. It's just people walking around slugging each other. It's the most boring shit. I hate battle royals. That being said, I hated this one three times more than I normally hate battle royals. But it was it was something that we were married to. And from a storyline perspective, it helped get us where we needed to go. It helped build to that Hogan sting WCW versus NWO <coughs> overall theme that we were building. So is it one of my favorite pay-per-views of all time? Not even close. Was the main event, the 60-man battle Royal, hard to watch? Even reviewing it? Absolutely. We tried to improve upon the presentation by, you know, what we had learned in the previous two to make it a a little bit easier to follow. But it's just, there's just too much going on for it to be entertaining until you get down to the end. And I think once we got down to the end, uh, you know, Nash coming down to Sting. I don't know how many people were fooled by that. Right. Maybe people up in the cheap seats who would probably drop 60 or 80 bucks on beer during the course of the pay per view. They might have been a little convinced. Pretty hard to buy. (laughs) But hey, it worked. Look at the crowd reaction at the end. At the end of the day, it worked.
0: Why Hall? Why did Hall get the nod here? It is—I mean—it does feel like it's coming out of left field for it to be him to win.
1: I don't realize. I don't. you know, I don't remember if there was any specific reason why it was Hall. We we wanted it to be an NWO guy because if you go back and listen to the commentary, it was set up in such a way that whoever wins the match between Hogan and Sting gets a world title shot at a uh, Bowl in February. So I think the idea was let's stack the deck for NWO. So even if, you know, a non NWO guy were to win this thing somehow, an NWO guy gets another shot in February. You know, that was kind of like the, the logic, if you will, behind it. But I don't recall that there was any specific reason why it should be Scott Hall.
0: And to be clear, we're going to change that main event. Uh, it's not going to be, um, the world champion versus scott hall in february it's in fact going to be a rematch from starcade and instead hall gets his title shot in march and uncensored and that's when he'll take on sting who at the time is the world champion uh overall this is uh, an interesting so- an interesting show to uh, say the least just because of the undercard being hit or miss but the stuff that was hitting was real good And as you said, the last couple of minutes of the show, the fans were way into it, crazy reactions, um, fans who read the observer though, gave it 68% thumbs down, 21% thumbs up 10% thumbs in the middle. Almost everyone agreed. Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio had the best match of the night. They liked Ric Flair and Kurt Henning second best, and they thought the worst match of the night was the battle Royal followed ever so closely by Alex Wright and Steve McMichael. Uh, Looking back at this, what would you say? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle? I'd probably go thumbs in the
1: middle on this one. There was enough good stuff uh, that, you know, kept me engaged. Stuff we've already put over between, you know, Eddie and Ray and Eugene and Ultimo Dragon and a couple of the other matches. Regal, um, Taylor, Steiners, I, I enjoyed watching. So there was enough good stuff in the middle of it that kept me engaged, uh, but not enough to, that would make me want to put it too far over the top.
0: Well, we're putting it over the top this week. We had fun with world war three, 1997, and we're going to be back next week for hashtag ask Eric, anything. It's your chance to ask Eric anything in the world you want. And uh, look forward to that one next week right here on December 2nd on December 9th, we're going to talk all about Ray Mysterio on December 16th, we're going to cover Brett's WCW debut, which is pretty topical with this show we just did. We're getting our way back machine on new uh, Christmas Eve's Eve, December 23rd. We're going to talk about the time that Medusa dumped the trash or dumped the title in the trash, a late 95 nitro watch along. That's what we're going to do there. And then we'll round out the year with a very special show. Starcade 93, what a, uh, a bright spot in WCW that was in 93. Uh, but we'll start next year, 2020 with, uh, trying to depress the hell out of Eric Bischoff as much as we can on June 6th, we're going to cover the debut of thunder, which as you know, is the beginning of the end, uh, January 13th. We'll talk a little sold out 1999 on January 20th. We'll do something way different. We'll talk about the time that sting debuted on Monday night. Raw after all that time he spent with WCW he's finally on the opposite channel. On January 27th, we'll cover Clash of the Champions 30, which happened in 1995, right there at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. And then we'll be ready for the Super Bowl come February. We hope you've uh, enjoyed our episode today. Hope you want to ask a question next week on the show. You can do so on Twitter at 83weeks. And uh, if you haven't already hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review. If you think you're so inclined, if you'd like to advertise on the show, hit us up. Dave Green is our man at Advertising at gmail.com just fire them off an email. Hey, hey, advertising at gmail.com. And uh, don't forget to pick up a shirt this holiday season. It is the perfect gift for any wrestling fan in your life. And if you'd like to enjoy our, our shows ad free, join us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash 83 weeks until next week. He's E Bischoff on Twitter. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff.